begin yeah i can't believe we made it back to castle grayskull i want to turn so i can see you okay because i don't like just pretending i'm looking at someone the q2n sees all didn't we used to sit across from each other at the store we did i kind of I, I I spent like a year and a half staring at your balls yeah it was great because you were on a high seat and i was on a low seat i i kind of like that yeah uh, i know you i know you did i liked uh, the the bat you know across the table mm-hmm. across the table right next door down the street across the yeah, field right. here but we are here we are all right well so we're, we're doing this that. one we're doing this one without a script which is very unusual for us yeah, you know, you guys who have uh, listened to us for some time know how much I hang on this, uh, the outline and everything. But, um, you know, we're loosening things up and trying to make it a little more natural. And uh, our time has run out. So we're just sort of, you know, I think we've got a lot to talk about. We've we got do. A very exciting interview that, um, that Mike was able to do without me. So, you know, yeah, sorry I'm about a- that. achieving my, uh, you know, my destiny of just being your sidekick. I think that's where this is headed. <laughs> Going to be the mic can, with Matt X. Can I can I just tell you I'm not a fan of doing uh, those interviews alone because yeah. um, it starts to get really sort of I don't know. There's no like it, it, there's a normal trajectory to it without any like asides or break-ins or anything, and I get, I get bored of myself after right. a while. Yeah, you, know? you have two people. If I'm like going on a little thing and then I take a pause and I'm like, okay. Mike's going to save me now and jump in. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, vice playing, versa. it's like playing tennis. You hit the ball. So if it's just, you know, you and the, uh, the interviewee, but, you know. Plus, plus this guy who's not like a recovery guy, like that's a weird interview, right? Because yeah. we're a recovery-ish podcast, right. right? And this guy is like just the history of LSD and psychedelics in America. So it's kind of a weird, you don't know what avenues to go down or, yeah. or what topics to cover and what topics not to cover. But uh, Right. Well, I think when you look over our body of work, you know, the, the, <laughs> the way we've um, uh-huh. kind of, you know, been exploring all these different things, I feel like, you know, learning about the history of psychedelics in America kind of it's on brand, I think. I think it's it is. Uh, Which is, plus he's the host of the uh, the Grateful Dead podcast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. It's, that alone made me want to send him an email. Is it the Grateful Dead cast? Uh, yes. Oh. It is, well, it's the, no, it's the good old Grateful Dead the good cast. good old, right. Dave talks about that all the time. Yes. That is uh, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. And he speaks to various luminaries of the psychedelic world and of the Grateful Dead world. And it's all very exciting. And if you are, um, and as I alluded to in the uh, interview, uh, he's been called the Ken Burns of Deadhead, <laughs> Deadheads. So, so who he is, does it. He does a very. His name is Jesse Jarno. Jesse so, Jarno. Who is Ken Burns? Are you shitting me? No, just uh, no. I'm not shitting you. I don't know who Ken Burns is. <laughs> Have you ever watched the documentaries like the Civil War, for example, the famous documentary about the Civil War that came out? Gosh, it must have been the late '80s. I remember seeing the VCR set that you could yes. buy on. Uh, well, he was the documentary filmmaker. Oh. on that, and he also made a bunch of other ones on jazz, on baseball, oh. on American parks, and huh. you know. But he has a certain style, and in fact, when you go into um, iMovie to edit the video of us, there is a setting that you can click, and it's the Ken Burns setting, and it. And, oh you know, no, kidding! Yeah, it, it puts you. 
it frames it in a certain way that he's famous for. Wow, how did I miss that one? Anyway, now I, I know. know. That's what's great about this show. I'm learning something new every day. Yeah. So anyway, I think, uh, um, we're oh, were you going to read a like... And we're back. Welcome <laughs> right. to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. I'm Mike. And boy, do we have a show for you. Today on RMA, the boys return to Castle Greystall <laughs> Studios, if I can even pronounce it, and get back together to set us self, uh, boy, we're getting <laughs> set up for a great interview uh, for you guys to listen to for the great Jesse Jarno uh, of the uh, good old grateful deadcast and we're going to catch up on everything that's been going on in our lives welcome back can we Com- do that again comedy intrigue oh no that's no the next that's one. later okay never so, mind um <laughs> Sorry. Th- this episode is brought to you by recovering in the middle ages patreon yeah right what is patreon that uh it's a it's a members only <laughs> subscription service featuring discord private message chat and video meeting platform for everybody who's on board, it's like having a recovery support family right at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Uh, the members, we do extra shows, video episodes. Um, we have uh, special merch that you get when you've been a member for a couple of months. Yeah. And, uh, they've been going out. People have been really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. And the Discord uh, conversation has been quite lively of late, even though uh, with the insane manic end of the school year and everything else that's been going on, I have not been attending to my Discord duties as much as I have in the past. And for that, I sincerely apologize. Yeah, it's um, we've both been super busy, but everybody's busy. You know, it's just great. Like on my phone, when I get a message, if if one of the monsters is chiming in, it just pops up on my phone like a text. Oh, yeah. yeah. You just kind of jump on and I... You know, we have a good morning, and um, not only that, um, it's just a good time for everybody. Um, you know, sometimes I come on there, and I just need some support, and I'll say, having a rough day, you know, and, right. and people, people jump in and make me feel better. So go to patreon.com slash recovery in the Middle Ages to learn more and sign up. Awesome. Yeah. We're, uh, you, there's other places people can get a hold of us, right? Is our website back up and cooking? So, yeah, middleagesrecovery.com. There's been uh, some talk of the uh, secure certificate uh, expiring. Uh-huh. And, uh, Is it re-upped? It, yeah, it's re-upped. You know, it's, it's can people a, buy a T-shirt there? You should be able to buy a T-shirt. I'm thinking of doing a test purchase, though, just to see if it's really working. We may as well buy our own shirts because no one else is yeah. buying them. I think, yeah, we may have to. Uh, maybe we'll give some out at uh, DobeCon 3 coming up. Oh, though. yeah. October 1st. We I'm should plug that, but uh, I think Dave finally found a spot, right? For uh, what, our ad? No, for DopeyCon 3. Three. Yes, it he's was... got a venue. I forget what it is, but check on uh, <laughs> Dopey Nation or uh, DopeyPodcast.com to find out. It's running on all cylinders it's here today. Lovely. Um, and I just have one more thing to say before we continue. Okay. Last thing. Okay. We can almost close the show after I say All right. This. Welcome to all the monsters listening uh, okay. stateside, around the world, down the street, across the table, and right next door. Welcome all. Settle in, buckle up, and get ready for excitement, comedy, tragedy, intrigue, mystery, and so much more. And I think we just talked about where we can find us. Right. We did. And, We're going uh, out of order. Can, this must be destroying your mind. Yeah, it is. You know, guys, <laughs> I, no one else cares but me. But um, it's kind of fun. So I wonder if people, if this is like the part that people skip past, like they do in Dopey when, when they read the ads. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm. I feel like you have to do it for like the three people who might hear it. Yeah. You know. Right. You got to always say who you are and what you're doing and where to find you. We should um, sell those t-shirts at a greatly discounted rate at DopeyCon, but I don't know if Dave would appreciate the competition. He's got his own t-shirts to sell. Yeah. We might have to give them away. 
I, you know, maybe um, we'll have a contest and... Uh, a wet t-shirt contest? A wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> <laughs> um, great you, reviews will be read on the air. Mm. I feel like we oh. have. Uh, if you go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review in five stars, that would be appreciated because we do read them. Do we get a... Rel- we got a... Did we get a new one? Yeah, we do have a new one. So thank you guys. Um, yeah, we're just piling up the reviews, and it's really cool to hear. Are you going to read the new one? I was going to. Uh, the, this last one was just love it. Five stars. Love every episode. These gentlemen do a fantastic job with this podcast. Entertaining, inspiring, and educational. Thank you, gentlemen. Gentlemen, they don't know us very well. Yes, I haven't frequently been referred to as a gentleman, but I'll take That's it. That's my dad. Yeah. My dad is Mr. <laughs> Ross, right? That's right? Don't call me Mr. Ross. That's my father. That's my father. Um, you could also tell us your story. I think we've actually got a really great email to read. Oh, we got a couple. Listen, um, I got one. we got one email from uh, a fan in uh, England. He's an American from Texas who moved to England, and he, he wrote this email that I... It's so long, like, and I, so I was incredibly blown away by the amount of thought that he gave to our podcast that he could write an email so long that I was like, oh my God, I have to read this entire thing. And I read it and I responded to him, but there were a few things that I didn't quite touch on because uh, I just didn't have time. And I said, we would address them on the podcast. So we're going to get to that. But the other thing is, and I keep forgetting this, and I think you keep forgetting it too. What? But you remind me sometimes. We have a hotline. Oh yes, right. Do you and the, the hotline is, um, you know, I check it every once in a while. But usually, Google gives me a, a notification. Yeah. That um, oh, thank you. It's five one six eight 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 six two nine seven. The RMA hotline. The RMA hotline. We won't you can answer. call. <laughs> yeah, we. It's not like we're not like a suicide prevention line or anything. No, please. Or uh, you know, we can't refer you to a, your local AA meeting there. But if you call and you leave your story, we'll play it on the air, like we're about to play one. Um, but you get three minutes, right? Yeah. So you, you get know, about three minutes, or you condense- get cut off, and that yeah. has made some people sad. Yeah. Very sad. So just condense your life story into three minutes. That would be great. Or call back. It yeah. doesn't matter. It's, it's like Google thing. It's a Google thing, so it's free. But Google did send me a note this week saying they were going to pull the number unless I logged in. Oh. So I logged in and I discovered that we had uh, an email sitting there. A voicemail. Or a voicemail sitting there from uh, April 29th. And I felt terrible that we had, you know, I wonder yeah. if this person like thinks that we she just, just probably ignored her. <laughs> she probably thinks we're so busy and have so many voicemails we couldn't possibly get. But now we've gotten to it. And uh, Yes. We, so should I play it now? Yes. Roll tape. Okay. Here we go. And then I'm going to turn on these lights because the camera probably sees us in the dark. No. Okay. Here we go. Hey guys, this is Dre calling from Northern California. And my coworker Hi, gave me an unexpected Friday off, which is like amazing. <laughs> and um, so I got to drive my eighth graders into school this morning. And my son chose the music, which was a Jeff Rosenstock song. Jeff Rosenstock has been some really important music to me uh, in choosing a path of recovery and sobriety and one of the lyrics in a song this morning that really struck me was the refrain from a song called the shit that you hate (laughs) and the lyrics are hang on to your hope sorrow don't fix no problems and man (laughs) that just hit me like a shot to the heart this morning uh 
I just feel like I spent so many years, you know, using substances and justifying it with my sorrow. Um, and so, yeah, just how clear that is that in that moment when you don't have any hope, justifying your decisions based on the sorrow that you feel like the sorrow is totally legitimate, but choosing these hopeless, you know, uh, substances or relationships or addictions of any kind, like really aren't going to help you feel better. So that's what choosing sobriety is for me. It's like recovering the hope for the journey and the willingness to just show up in whatever the moment actually is. And um, I'm just so thankful for you all and the podcast every week. Um, I don't often get to like chime in and interact on the discord, but sometimes I have moments where I just need to like read through those comments and just feel that connection to the other people. That stuff is also golden to me. And um, I know that there's a lot of like Buddhism and Presbyterianism going from you all, but I just want to say that RMA to me is like the Unitarianism of recovery. Like we're all just questioning and including each other with acceptance. Uh, I love all the relatability of just regular life that you guys talk about, especially as a middle-aged person, like we're just doing. And um, yeah, you guys are just moving us along. So I just want to say maybe in addition to doing the next right thing, like maybe I don't know what the right thing is. So just keeping that in mind of do the next thing that's built on hope and that's progress, not perfection. Thank you. Man, wow. Man, oh man, oh man. That was that was a good one. There's a lot of stuff in there, right? Letting your sorrow drive the bus is, is not a good idea. Right. You yeah. know? And how often have we done that in our lives? We we've let the the bad shit pull us along by the nose ring. You yeah. Know? I, I I usually think about it when I think in those terms, I'm usually noticing fear based decisions, but mm-hmm. also sadness. But You know, there's been a lot going on in my life that, uh, you know, that has just created uh, uncertainty and fear. And I'm trying mostly, you know, just this new, this job that I've been, uh, you know, been working, that I've been talking about how stressful it is. Mm. And I'm trying really hard to notice when I'm making a fear-based decision. Right. Because it's very easy, you know, to, because it's a gut reaction. But Mm -hmm. what I didn't think about was a sadness-based decision. So it's kind of... You know, the, another side of the same coin, I guess. Yeah. I mean, sadness and fear are, are really intertwined with one another, I think. And it's yeah. so hard to sort of bring yourself out of that and see your own situation objectively. But, right. um, to you know. P- pull back the 30,000 foot view is really hard when you're in the middle of it, right? But yeah. Some, so sometimes it takes a song lyric or something to sort of put that into your head, like, like right. here. And and for those of you who are watching this video, I'm not scrolling Facebook while I'm actually reading along with the transcript <laughs> of the, of the, um, of the voicemail and the, which kind of screwed me up because one said, um, cause you know, Google voice has an unusual, their AI needs a little work when it comes uh, to translation. Think? So, uh, you know, I'm reading this this line that said, sorrow don't fix no problems and mayonnaise hit me like a shot to the heart this morning. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not sure what that means, but I, I, I get it. Um, 
And the Unitarian uh, approach that, that she mentioned. She, I do like that. She compared us to Unitarians. I, is, is, did she mention the Presbyterian and Buddha thing, or was that an email? Did I just hear that? You just heard it. Yeah. A couple of seconds. Uh, yeah, my head, it's very early <laughs> for us, guys. Um, but yeah, that's that's very true, and I think that's that makes me happy because that's what we go for. Like, it's that, I'm so, like, that the message is out there mm-hmm. that we're not here to preach to preach on, uh, like I share my perspective, you yeah. share yours, and well, we don't we don't necessarily know if that's your perspective, yeah, or if it's even true. You know, it's the <laughs> journey, shit. <laughs> right? You know, this is the exploration. This is like the joy of my life to you know learn and learn, and I love to be wrong. You know, I hate to be wrong. I love it. I um, I love it, but I'm working on that. You know, yeah. I'm working on letting go of the the desire for perfection, which causes me and has caused me all kinds of problems over, yeah. over the course of my life. Um, but have you ever been to a Unitarian Universalist church? A little bit of an aside. Uh, he, what, like once, I was when I was a kid. I remember going yeah. to it. Did on, what, did your parents just decide to take you to the Unitarians and see how that would sit? Or? I'm sure. I can't remember what the reason was. I think I may have been like visiting, a, sleeping over at a cousin's house or a okay. friend's house, something like that. And yeah. they go to church and they took me with them, type yeah. of thing. So it's always awkward when they do that. But yeah, I thought it was. My impression of it as like an 11 year old was that it was too like nebulous, you know? Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. I didn't like how just anything can be, you know, I kind of liked that certain feeling I got from the Presbyterian church where they're like, no, this is the way, the truth and the life, blah, 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 you know, Mm. that's it. And as a kid, I liked that certainty and I felt like the Unitarian, the way I saw it, I don't see it that way now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't see it as uncertainty. I see it as inclusiveness, but yeah, as a kid, that was my reaction. I was like, well, what do they really believe? You know, is Jesus even the Son of God? Does that matter? You know, these are things I used to think about as right. a kid. Well, I mean, me too, and that's that's why we're weird, nerdy people that we are as adults. But, yes. Um, when we first moved here, there's a Unitarian Universalist Church in Huntington, um, a beautiful little spot in the middle of near Huntington Harbor, mm-hmm. and we were sort of scouting around for. I don't know, just some sort of spiritual center to sort of give to the kids. And, you know, we didn't really, we weren't really on the Catholic bus. We didn't, and I always had issues with um, the Episcopalians because, you know, Henry VIII wanting to marry, not being able to get a divorce seems like a bad reason to start a church, but what have you, you know, that's kind of The Episcopalians being the American arm of the Anglican Church, which is the church that uh, Henry VIII created. Church of England. Right, Church of England. But, um, so we ended ended up going to a service there. And as an adult, you know, who has been steeped in uh, Zen and Buddhism and Vedanta and, you know, Christian mysticism and all this other stuff... I went there, and when I left that place, I had exactly the same reaction as you, as eleven-year-old Nat did. I'm really? like, "What is this place even direction? about? Like, what?" Yeah. And and I love the in- inclusiveness, and I think a comparison of Unitarianism to RMA is not off the wall necessarily. No. Um, but yeah, I couldn't get. I couldn't. I, I felt like there was no center. Like I couldn't get yeah. get my head around it, and and um, like you can count so, on things when you're a Catholic. Like you know that you got to do this, that, yeah, and the and other. The problem with that, of course, is if you don't believe, really believe, right? You know, why am I doing <laughs> all know, this bullshit? You know, like especially this week has been very, very tough to sort of maintain any sort of Catholicism. You know, this, this, just this week. Well, you know <laughs> what happened this week. But I mean, it be- it becomes very sort of not to get political, but it it becomes very sort of self evident the the. Um, I don't know, the squirrely underpinnings of certain doctrines, mm. you know, 
Um, when you know the, where things come from, mm-hmm. it's harder to, you know, it's like yeah. you see behind the curtain when you, as we get older, we begin to understand why things are the way they are. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm thinking of what the Supreme Court did this week and, you yeah. know, whether that's really, uh, anyway, I, <laughs> never mind. Yeah. I'm not going down. We're that not road. discussing Supreme Court decisions <laughs> on this show. That's a different podcast. Yeah. I could, I could, I could do one of those too, but no. not that, not this one. Uh, so yeah, so maybe we should get into the email. Yes, a little bit, right? Yes. Unless you want to talk about what's going on at work. I, you know, why don't you do that first while I find the emails? I'm thinking of how to how to discuss this because I haven't talked a lot about exactly what was happening at this company that um, I was hired to to basically run. Um, it's been extremely emotionally and um, intellectually and just physically draining. Um, the long and short of it is the person who basically hired me to help um, ended up not doing their part. Uh, and I discovered a lot of things um, that had been going on that as my new position, mm-hmm. I couldn't ignore, and nor would I take responsibility. And I couldn't because I hadn't been there for the previous eight years. And as we be- I began to fix things and set things the way they should be in business, you know, like basic things, um, I began to notice that there was, and I have to be careful how I talk about this because I'm sure that... Um, Anything I say will be held against me. Um, but it just couldn't be ignored anymore. And long and the short of it is that person had to be uh, let go or um, be due to just total you know, negligence. And it was just really, really bad. And, uh, and now it's just me. Uh, and I didn't have this partner who I thought I would have, mm. you know, kind of guiding me through this new industry. And it's like a, there's so many moving parts. And it's so crazy. It's just crazy. It's a great business, but it has been so tough for me to, because, you know, on a personal level with this person who, you know, and, and uh, it's just, it's been really, really tough. But why do I keep doing it? It's because I've gotten to know the people that work for me and with me. And that's the way I see it. You know, I'm looking at it as a team and they weren't getting their due respect for all the work they do. And and so it's been great just getting to know those people and I really care about them. And, and I talk a lot about to them about the sanctity of the workplace and how, you know, everybody can come to the office and feel good about being there mm-hmm. and set their whatever's going on in their lives aside and just focus on a common, a common goal that, that helps all of us, you know. And, and I making think that, money. That, yeah, well, that's <laughs> it. You know, we're, we're there to provide for our families, essentially. Right. And each one of us at the company has a role in that, you know, and I think that everyone that's left and who we've hired since I got there is on board with that. And I feel like finally we can move forward in a positive way. There's a lot of trauma from previous uh, instances at that company. So it's me trying to get their trust, you mm-hmm. know, as an, and I, I think I've been doing that. And, uh, this just last bit of unpleasantness, you know, uh, we, I can't say we didn't know it was going to happen, but I was hoping it wouldn't basically. And, uh, and so that's where we are. So it's an exciting time. It's a very sad time. It's a very busy time. Uh, and, but that's, you know, I'm hoping that this last, thing that happened, you know, uh, will just be the start of a lot easier, positive momentum forward. Do I sound diplomatic enough? Yes. Good. You sound like, um, like this is the same 
spiel you gave to your employees. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of those things. And you guys out there, I'm sure you've been in these scenarios in the workplace where there's like maybe some personal stuff that gets mm. mixed in. And then so you have to make a business decision that sort of goes against what you might have done in your personal, but maybe not, you know, it's just... And it's been rough on me. I mean, I really thought I was just going to get this corporate job and, you know, get a check. And, and now I'm like running the whole thing. And, you know, it's just it's so much pressure. And uh, it's so ex- it's like it's exciting. There's pressure. It's scary. And it's also like promising all at the same time. I don't know. It's very exciting. Uh, but let me ask you this. What is Nat doing to take care of Nat during all this? You're looking at you it. You seem like you're you're taking care of like the organization and the yeah. employees, but what are you doing for yourself? So besides this, I mean, this is good. Yeah. This, this is one thing, yes. but I get home from these days. And when I say I've never worked as hard in my life, I mean it. In other words, I get there at nine 30. Um, I leave at five 30 and every single moment I'm in that office I'm doing at least three things at once, minimum. Mm. You know, I'm imagining that, this, I'm answering a call. That's I'm, very difficult to maintain over time. And um, it's amazing how long it's be five months I've been keeping it up. Mm. And it is difficult. And I have days where I'm off and I haven't resorted to drinking well, that or drugs. that was my next question. Like, have you felt the desire? Have you said that, you know, man, what I really could use now is a, you know, I could use a stiff drink. You know, I haven't, but what, what which is amazing and I'm trying to think if I ever really have, like, being completely honest with myself. And I think more often than not, I think to myself, wow, I can't believe I don't want to drink. Mm. That's what I think right. more than anything. So it's not that I don't think about a drink. I think about how I don't want one. It's kind of a glaring, like, this is the time in my life in the past, because I've been down this road. I've gotten these very successfully jobs with lots of pressure, and then I would tank mm-hmm. because I would fall back into drug use or drinking or whatever it was. Um, well, you've basically taken it off the table as an option, yeah, right? It's, exactly. Your brain doesn't even go there anymore. It really, really doesn't. And, and that's what can happen after a couple of years. You know, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden your life is reordered in such a way that to go back to that would just be unthinkable. Yeah. You know, it really is. Which, I, yeah. And then five years ago, would you thought that, you know, no. it's so crazy how, how your mind, which seems like, you know, I remember sitting there and I remember I read something, you know, maybe it was on our Facebook group or whatever of somebody who was, or somebody who wrote in, onto the dopey Facebook group who said, you know, I just, it's unimaginable to me that I could do this without drinking or do that without drinking or be without this, you know, or come home at the end of the day. Like, you can't even get your head around the, the possibility that that yeah. could exist. And then you fast forward a couple of years of sobriety and you can't get your head around the idea of using. No. Right? I mean, it's so amazing how the the brain restructures itself. It's restructured. And in that restructuring, if, you, if you're diligent with the, how your life is progressing, mm-hmm. your life changes to a point where you're just not set up to do that anymore. Yeah, like, like, where would I find the time? The where, time, I don't have... The energy. The, all my contacts are gone. Like people I would never call. Like um, maybe f- four or five years ago, or maybe let's say six, because I keep getting more time. <laughs> let's say six or seven years ago, I was in a place where I still had my old phone number, so people could still call mm-hmm. me. I still had, uh, even if, and this is when I was really trying to get sober, because, um, you know, unsuccessfully. So I was trying, which meant I would block my my dealers 
and things like that. But if I got into a situation where I was like, I, this is it, I would have things like, if this happens, I'm, I'm just going to make a call. Right. And I could still sort of reach back to that. So, Do you think you, you know, left all that stuff, in, that sort of scaffolding in place because part of you in the back of your head was like, if things get too bad, I yep. always have that phone number I can always call. Because, you know, Anna Lemke, who we've talked about, you know, who talks about the, you know, the, uh, the dopamine stuff, right. talks about the idea of self-binding. Yes. You know, which is, you know, you change the phone number, you put the phone in a case that won't open for five hours, all this kind of stuff. And I too, in the early, you know, days of, of sobriety, like, you know, I made sure that I give myself an out of some sort, you know, that yeah. if I wanted to drift back, I could, I, there was a way that I could re-engage and do that, you know? Yeah. They call that reservations. I remember when I first started being forced into recovery rooms and things like that, um, they talk, I remember them talking about that a lot. Reservations, you know, if in the back of your mind they call that, you're, you're making a reservation for a later date to use. Yeah. That's what that is. And uh, Which, you know, I also kind of think one day at a time uh, is also a reservation for a future use. But, I think so. You know, maybe, sometimes. Maybe that's true, too. I mean, it's good advice to take things one day at a time, but that then you're saying to yourself, the next day I'll do it, maybe. Yeah. You know, so it kind of opens you up. I don't know, but... What I do know is that, you know, it is possible. I'm not saying I'm ever, never going to fall off the wagon again, because who the hell knows? Uh, but I'm not. I don't not. know. See, is that a reservation? I feel like any time I've ever said, it's never happening again, it always <laughs> happens. So I'm sort of hedging never my bets. never, man. I'm hedging my bets. But I mean, it's funny, because Dave said this to me. When I recorded uh, uh, on, on Dopey's Patreon, I did a Patreon show. So if you want to hear that, you have to get on his Patreon and um, I remember saying to Dave something like, I would never drink again. Or the way I'm going, like, I don't feel it. I'm not, I don't want it. And he actually was the one to warn me a bit. Like, you're like, watch <laughs> what, you know, what you talk about. You better stay, you better stay humble and you better stay, you know, paying attention. Don't you trust can, yourself too much. He was basically you saying. You can stay humble and still have this idea in your yeah. head that you're never going to drink again. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of AA gobbledygook. Well, you know? yeah, you know, there's a lot of AA going on. But anyway, it made me think, maybe don't be so confident. Maybe um, stay humble, you know, don't start wandering into bars just as, because I can. You know? That's really funny that you should mention that because I've been thinking about that lately, That the fact that I have not been in a bar in, you know, two years, whatever, uh, aside from these corporate events, which I found myself getting bored shitless after you know, a uh, half hour, right. 45 minutes in a bar. But I was sort of starting to think because I, again, I, you know, I've been reading some stuff about people. I read this uh, woman posted something again. I don't know if it was dopey or our Facebook group because they all tend to run together. Right. Um, no, it was the Peloton sober group, right? She was relatively new to sobriety, but she was like, um, you know, I'm really like, I can't go to, you know, I can't go to bars. It's not fun anymore and all this stuff. And like, but she didn't like have the idea in her head that maybe not going to the bars was the answer. Right. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah, you know, she wasn't at the stage yet where she had found other things. Yeah. It was still like, I, I want to participate in this thing that I used to do for hours and hours every week, you know, but it's just not fun anymore because no. I, I can't do the, the drinking thing, the drinking part of it, you know? Right. Cause what's going on in a bar? Right, and, you know, um, and after like the first forty-five minutes, like it's the same conversation over and over, and you're not really covering any new ground, and it's boring as shit. And yeah, I this just made me think of a pertinent anecdote. Um, when I was in uh, 
when I when I was in one of these outpatient um, facilities, I, I was uh, just, those of you who don't know, I was like court mandated to complete an outpatient rehab uh, situation. In any case, I was in many of them because I kept getting kicked out. So this one, I'll never forget, you know, because I would be there for so long. I was there for years type of thing where other people would be in and out, you mm-hmm. know. So it was interesting. I'd see new people and kind of like watch them come and go and like listen to their different, you know, the things they would say to make excuses. Just one guy. <laughs> and it was all people who were there because they were going through a divorce and the court mandated it or something like that or a DWI. So there's a lot of people who weren't really there to recover. Right. You know what I mean? Or they were there because they had to, kind of like me. So um, this one guy, he was, he, he, you know, his big thing, the, the thing that was keeping him in, in like bars and stuff, because we kept telling him, you know, you really like, you hang out in a barbershop long enough, right. you're going to get a haircut. Right. So he's like, I'm in this dot league and we got the playoffs. <laughs> and if... Uh, you know, it, I don't go there to drink. I go there to play dots. And, uh, and we were all just like shaking our heads or like body. And then every time he would go to one of these dart tournaments, what do you think happened? Yeah, you know, course. and ultimately right. he got kicked out. But it's, there's sort of that, that connection. Like he's got to play dots. And no, you don't really have to. And maybe if you're fighting for your life or your, you know, child or mm-hmm. something like that, maybe you just kind of postpone your dart league yeah. because it's a dangerous place to be when you're trying to not drink. Right. It's like, it's this disconnect, you know, yeah. like I used to say, how am I going to watch football if I'm not, if I don't right. drink anymore? Right. Right. I really thought that was a main concern of mine. Yeah. Well, you may, now I just don't watch football because right. I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> just manufacture all this shit in your head as their excuses and rationalizations and justifications for yeah. why you need to continue this self-destructive behavior. And you can rationalize your way straight into the, the grave, you know, yeah. straight into your family walking away out into the sunset without you, you know, yeah. you know, people, they cling to that bottle, like fucking, you know, like can never let it go. Yeah. And they talk about it like it's a best friend, you know, right. But they used to have us write, um, breakup letters to the drug at different places. I've been to. Dear alcohol. Yeah. It's been a great ride, but dear heroin, I really love you, but your sister's cuter, you know, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Hmm. Um, who's who's, who's heroin sister? Uh, fentanyl, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> His older criminal cousin. <laughs> um, so uh, there's that, and it reminds me. How how long are we going to talk before this interview? Because guys, we're trying to like sort out the time. Well, we got a couple of yeah things. I got like a. Uh, do you want to do another email? You want to save the emails for next week? I don't uh, care. Let's let's do uh, another email. Okay. Great. We're, and it's so awesome to hear from the monsters. It's Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to do not the long, I'm going to save the long, long one for next week because we could idea. really get into the. We could do a whole or, show. When on I it. say next week, I mean next episode. Next which episode. won't be next week, I promise, because it's 4th of July. That's true. 4th of July. Uh, okay. So this one came in from CM, I'm going to call her. Um, mm-hmm. I left you two incomplete notes via your contact form because I kept trying to create a new line rather than a massive collection of words, but my habit of pressing enter sent my partial message off into the interwebs. Mm. Oh, yeah. Normally I'd say fuck it, but I've gotten what I've seen as a nudge from the universe to finally review your podcast and tell my story forthcoming. So I've left all of the stars on Spotify, but have no option to include notes or words for you. And since you're asking to hear from listeners, Mm -hmm. and then there's like the ellipsis. Ellipsis. Yes. Uh, I quit drinking alcohol over 14 months ago. Awesome. Relying on QuitLit and alcohol-free podcasts for tips and tools, I found RMA after hearing Nat's interview with Annie Grace on This Naked Mind podcast. Nice. Thank you, Ms. Grace. 
So sometime in April 2022, I started at the beginning and have been out of sync, but there have been tiny little weird coincidences along the way. I listen in the car driving between my teaching gigs and found that I quite enjoy having your company. The first weird coincidence was after a night out to a local brewery for live music. When I asked for alcohol-free options, I was offered kombucha or root beer. Hmm. Thinking I've never had kombucha, and after confirming it wasn't hard, as in alcohol, had mm-hmm. alcohol in it, because there is hard kombucha. So if you guys are drinking kombucha, always ask, right? Uh, I tried it. The next morning, the episode that queued up was? The kombucha. Yes, the kombucha episode. That's fun. Another bit of weird was on Father's Day 2022, when the next episode coming in my ear holes was your Father's Day 2021 show. Oh, cool. Nice. Although I'm not sure how I feel about being a monkster, here I am, a 45-year-old married woman, child-free by choice, living in the Chicago suburbs. That's our exact target market. That's so cool. <laughs> Fairly new to sober life and somehow relating to two middle-aged dads. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? We're very, we're so related. We're very I always hang out with the wives when we go out and take these group hangouts. Do you really? I always end up like hanging out with the wives. Hmm. Says something about me, I think. But you know, your, your, <laughs> your kid likes hanging out with the ladies too. Yeah. Who knows? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh Listening to how you guys are out there navigating suburban life gives me a refreshing perspective. I feel like I've got new sober friends. I was already endeared to you and loving what you created, but when Erin made her first appearance on the pod, I knew I would be a long-time listener. Uh, we got to get Erin back. we got to get Erin back. We miss you, Erin. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for being real mm. and, for, and for being funny. Your content has been a valued addition to my sobriety toolkit in peace and good health, CM. So, CM Punk, thank you. That's nice, right? Yeah, CM Punk, by the way, is the name of I don't a know professional wrestler, and that's that's why I said that. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, because I'm a nerd. Thank you so much for writing. I think it's the coolest thing. Like, we made all those episodes like crazy. Like, yeah. we went nuts every week, pandemic crazy. <laughs> we were definitely content. pandemic crazy. I was on fire because, you know, I didn't have much going on professionally. And uh, it's so cool that it's living out there. And all of these great conversations we've had with each other are on tape. Yes. You know, because that's what I, that's what I initially sort of envisioned for this podcast. I'm like, me and Mike, um, I've always wanted to hang out with this guy and get to know him. And now I've found out that he's got a lot more in common with me than I thought. And I think it would be great to document the progression of this friendship. Mm-hmm. That was initially, I thought that was my hook. I'm like, this is going to be cool. People might be interested to see like how two previously anonymous, you know, alcoholics in the same town. Like I thought it was compelling, you know, it is get it's together. a great story. Yeah. And uh, it's cool. So it's like sort of documenting our friendship and, and also our recovery. So it didn't exactly, you know, head in that direction, but I think it is inadvertently. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to go back and listen, but no, uh, I kind of want to, but I kind of, I'm scared, you know, because it's really, it's, and I guess anybody that has a podcast goes through this to some, some level, people that go back and they start at the beginning and then yeah. they, they write you and they're talking about stuff that happened like two years ago. And you're like, what the fuck? Are they what are they talking about? I don't, <laughs> I don't remember, remember that. that. Yeah. But you know, it's, uh, but you mean something to, to people, you know, you, we, you help them. And that's, it's, it's, it's not only an incredible, um, honor yeah. but it's like an incredible feeling of responsibility yeah you know that you have a platform and you're not going to be out there telling people like to go do you know things yeah you know and and it gets me like because we've been missing a couple of weeks here and there we're trying to change our schedule to, to match you know the post-pandemic universe mm. and um you know when i hear emails from people who are just starting to listen that's what gets me i forget sometimes yeah. that 
you know, the monsters are out there and, and um, I want to talk to you as much as you want to talk to me. And I, I think it's such a cool, like, relationship that we have with the listeners. So very cool. Thank you so much for writing. Even during the uh, hiatus that we took, you yeah. know, you look at the downloads and there's like a few hundred a day. Like people are just like, yeah, still back. It's like they're going back then they're finding mm-hmm. it for the first time. And yeah. uh, ah, it's great. Yeah. So enough said on that one. Um, enough said on that. Yeah. So just, so the end of the school year is bananas, right? Yes. Bananas. And the, the last couple of weeks has been especially bananas around here because I had like you, like, like your son, my son graduated from the sixth grade. Graduated in, yes. in the same ceremony. They're heading up to the uh, to the a new school next year, so that was um, getting getting ready for all that was uh, time consuming. Time uh, consuming. There was so many events and yeah, like lots of events. Oh my goodness! Like every night, one week, last week or the week before, every single night was something, right? Yeah. And then um, my oldest son graduated from high school. Last weekend. Which is, you know. So that was, yes. Yeah. Those of crap. you who have been listening from the beginning know that in the beginning, that was not a foregone conclusion that that was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but I'm he did. Glad it. it did. And he's off to the University of Scranton in the fall. Sweet. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, I have positive feelings. My mind is tuned into the universal yeah. mind, and hopefully, you know, everything goes well. We shall see. And I, I, I love that I get to sort of see you go through it before I do. Yeah. You know, so, you know, Mike's kids are older than mine, not all of them, but so it's really kind of, it's helpful. Like if, if one of them, uh, you know, my older son uh, is about to go to the, the high school, to the seventh grade, they start high school. So now I can ask you, like, you know, what, what happened with this one or that? Like, what are we supposed to do? You know, because I tell you what we're not supposed to do. We can have that conversation because yeah. things get a little... You know, wiggy. Yeah, I'm worried you know. about that. And uh, those of you out there with kids who are like tweenagers, like I have, and, and Mike, I'm starting to get that anxiety. Yeah, it's awful. Is he going to do what I did? <laughs> right. You know, uh, I worry about that, but mm. I feel like if I overly mm-hmm. make preventative measures, it's going to just call attention to it. And and then also... And will, they'll, they will resent and they will rebel. And they'll say, why do you think I would do that? You know, right. like, why do you keep saying don't smoke pot? You know, I wasn't even thinking about it. But now I am. Now. <laughs> what, what is so great about this pot that I shouldn't smoke it? You know what? Ben came to me yesterday and he, want, he was like, hey, can I get this, this vape that doesn't have anything in it? It's I got to, that. Too and I'm from, like... And I'm vaping like a schmuck. I, and I'm like... I'm like, no, like all that is, it's, it's a training wheels device yeah. for, for when they hook you on nicotine a year from now, yeah. you know, like oh. who is putting the shit on TikTok, like trying to reel in these like 11 year olds. I had some issues with Noah on that. And, you know, I can't ignore the fact that I still vape. They know I do. They give me a hard time for it. And the schools and commercials and stuff are really going hard against vaping. So I'm really losing credibility, you know, and he, you have to understand, like, I can't tell my kids, you know, I quit heroin. I, I'm just doing this. Or I quit, you know, uh, right. But for me, I'm like, this is all I'm doing. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and I'm still clinging on to that little pacifier. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've been really trying to, as they say in the South, I'm fixing to quit uh, right. vaping, uh, because, you know, I don't want, because even if I say don't do it in the back of his mind, he's going to say, daddy, does it mm-hmm. and uh and yeah that's that's driving me nuts but well they just banned jewels last week what do you mean banned they banned jewel cannot sell their product anywhere in the united states no shit yeah wow 
Wow. Yep. Huh. Okay. Well, there's your recovering the news for this recovering week. Recovering the news. <laughs> oh, oh, fuck. Jesus <laughs> Christ. See, this is what happens when I get out of practice. Yeah. Um, but the, the graduations are good. My kids, uh, of course, one graduated from second grade and the other one, uh, you know, oh. they always call it a graduate. Right, because that's a new school too, second to third in our in our little town. And not only that, but my little guy, Max, is just like doing so great. He like, he won some contest uh, at school. He wrote this poem and, uh, and, and he won and uh, he got published in this like globally sourced, you know, kids book awesome. of poetry. And he had a whole thing. We went to the board of ed and they called him up and he held Very up the cool. award. And uh, I was so proud of him. And, and even Noah's getting good grades too. So even though he's a pain in my ass, and uh, he and he reminds me of the wor- sometimes the worst parts of me, but also like mm-hmm. he's getting the good and the bad, and I'm trying not to over uh, overemphasize the bad stuff. But he still does good in school, better than I ever did. Yeah, you know? that's great. Um, but I don't want to overpraise the younger one because right. I want him to feel yeah. bad, and et cetera. It's, it's et really cetera. is a delicate balancing act. So so Ben and um, and Noah didn't really hang out much at school this year, but they sort of rekindled their relationship over fishing camp. Yeah. They spent the last week uh, in the Long Island Sound with the captain on Captain Stu's uh, pirate ship. This has been pulling awesome. Pulling porgies out of the, out of the sound. Um, they caught a lot of fish this week, man. Yeah, dude. Um, this is one of the coolest things. And, and I'm so glad that they're, they're actually hanging out Yeah, they're upstairs. both upstairs. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm selfishly like, I want Noah to be like best friends with Ben so we can come hang out, you know? <laughs> right. And that's why today he's like, oh, can I come? I just want to, you know, and uh, I was like, it's last minute and that's a shitty thing to do to a friend to just like bring your kid over and like short notice on a Saturday morning. But... <laughs> Everyone was like, I'm going to take a shower. This yeah, is on you. Because <laughs> at first I was like, nah, I don't think that's such a great idea. So I was like, let me just text Mark. He's pretty easy going. Maybe he won't care. And uh, I, I don't care. And so here he is. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it's been really cool. The porgies. Yeah. Those of you out there that have never eaten a porgy, like I never <laughs> ate one before. Uh, they're so freaking good. Mm. And Noah is taking this opportunity to like cook for the family. Yeah. So a few nights in a row, he brought the porgy home which is like a white fish. Yeah, and they basically. fillet it right on the boat so you don't have to do it in your kitchen, which it's, is a great thing. It's all filleted and Noah like cooked for us a few nights in a row. I took pictures of it, you know, he put the he just put tons of butter on these little like fillets and he did the oven mm-hmm. and made the rice. I helped him with the rice. And uh, it's just like I can see the satisfaction that he was getting. Yeah. And he would say, I caught it, I ate it, and I cooked it. I'm right. providing for the family, that's he right. said. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. And then that's been really great. And it's so cool that they're getting to hang out, you know. Yeah. I'm hoping in high school that they'll, they'll be better buddies or they can have more time to chill. Yeah, uh, that would be great. I'm just trying to not overly push it because I know that'll, mm. right. you know, if he knows... You know, right. Right. <laughs> then he'll be like, oh, dad wants me to do this. Yeah, fuck that. Right? <laughs> I'm not doing that. Um, but yeah, it's been really cool. So things are go- going along. The kids are in camp and, you know, we could catch up with you guys all day. Uh, there's so much going on in our lives and I'm sure there's so much going on in your lives. Yeah, let us know. Put it on the Facebook page. Yeah, we Join can. the Patreon and hop on into that Discord. Yeah. Three we- bucks a month, you know. Yeah, it's a good time. We're yeah. all having fun. I got to and- buy like video equipment. Yeah. <laughs> We no, talk about serious stuff, and we it's it's a lot of fun though. But I think now would be a good time to intro. Yeah, let's take a quick break, and yeah. then we'll come back and intro the uh, the guest. We'll be back after these words. 
Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. And we're back. <laughs> um, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Because I did Wait, we too. Didn't, we didn't do that yet. Oh, we're gonna. I gotta introduce it first because oh. to give it some context. Boy, that that was bad. <laughs> All right, let's start it again. Nah, this is this no. is why people like us. Yes. Um, so welcome way, back. Yes. Noah and Ben are outside throwing those snap poppers. Oh, yeah, great. And I have. You should see the explosives I have in my garage right now. Yeah. So of July. Fourth of July is coming. Yeah. I actually asked a bunch of the monksters out. And in America, as everybody in the world knows, this is our Independence Day. It's a big, drunken, um, firework, explosive-laden, you know, celebration. <laughs> Meat-eating. Of it's the <laughs> violent revolt at the America. <laughs> the uh, violence that is America. <laughs> against uh, the British Empire. And so, um, I don't know, historically speaking, Fourth of July it's America. It, I always think about this movie, Flight of the Navigator, mm. a movie from the 80s, and it starts out showing something from the 70s, and it's like a family in the 70s in a suburb of California, and they go on their boat, uh, and it's just like, it's just Americana, like the Wonder Years. It's 4th of July, it's the 70s, the family's together, and it's just like, Ugh. So I'm always trying to recapture or create a moment. And when you try and create a moment, it doesn't no, happen. you can't, no. But uh, that's what I think of when I think of 4th of July, hmm. the beach, you know, by us and um, fireworks and, uh, yeah. you know. Well, we have a, sort of an autonomous zone um, in a beach, Beekman Beach down there in yeah. Oyster Bay, where the cops just sort of open the gates and they let everybody bring all these high-powered explosives. It's in. like Portland with drugs. Yeah. You could do anything. Right. They and then they just sit you. there in the car and watch. Yeah. That's all, you know. And uh, so I take full advantage because the a neighboring state, Pennsylvania, um, you can just drive across the border from New Jersey and load up your car with anything you want, yeah. fireworks-wise and, you know. Yeah, and you're, you're way into that. Um, there's it's two- not me. I mean, like, I don't know if I would do it if it weren't for the fact that I had two teenage boys that really are into it. You know? Oh, so they're super into it, and that's your excuse. That's yeah. my excuse. Yeah. I'm sticking with that I've excuse. I've used that one before. <laughs> All right. At the risk of this show going on forever, yeah. uh, we should talk about a little bit about the interview. And I'm yes. Gonna, I'm going to have to preface it, because it's funny. When, you, when, um, when someone gives you like an hour, right, and they say, uh, you know, I can talk to you for an hour, and there's so much to talk about. Like, what do you focus on? What do you even, where do you even start with that? This is why you have an right? outline. This is why, and I had an outline. Yeah. You look at my outline. One, two, it's like five pages long for this interview, right? Yeah, you have to bring them back somehow. That happens, yeah. uh, I've listened to interviews, you can hear it go off, and then the host's job is to go back right, to the middle. Right, right, you, you have to bring them back. But, but it's not easy. It's not easy, and, and plus the topic is like such a sprawling, multi-headed hydra of a topic uh, that it's hard to kind of squeeze it down into something, you know, like an, of sound, of soundbite size. So why am I talking to a, a, a guy who literally wrote the book on the history of psychedelics in America? Yes. Why? Well, um, because I have been really into the idea of psychedelics as therapy lately. And, uh, I've read some of the studies 
you know, that show incredible results for addiction. Like there's an 85% success rate for smoking cessation after a year yeah. with a single dose of psilocybin. And they've, they, they've had crazy. similarly good results with, with um, substance, you know, like alcohol abuse and opiates. And what I find fascinating about that is like the mechanism by way which it works is not like, it's not like a, um, uh, an opioid agonist or something that, you know, or like something like the Sinclair method, like naltrexone, which gets in there and, you know, takes the enjoyment of using the substance away, mm. which is something that we're going to have a guest on within the next few weeks to talk about. But, right. but these, what these medicines do is basically they pull you back to a 50,000 foot view and you can kind of observe what's going on in your life and the whole totality of everything. Let's you be objective, you would say, on yeah. your own existence. Uh, yeah, in wow. a way. And it also reinforces the commonality of experiences between yourself and the rest of the human race, right? And uh, well, that sounds like really airy fairy. Uh, the fact that these drugs are not like drugs in the conventional sense of the word that, you know, you, you take like a, you take naltrexone, you take it and it's very specific in what it does in, in terms of getting in between you and alcohol and reducing your cravings and your desires. And, and that's like a, that's a normal drug and a normal thing that a drug would do. These are not that kind of thing. So, so the question with psychedelic therapy is, is a clinical model even the best way to use these drugs? Hmm. Or do you need to develop a new model? Like and, what? shamanism? Well, I mean, that's historically how these right. things have been used, right? Going back into prehistory and, um, you know, with the ancient Greeks. And then there's, there's also this theory that I touched on briefly in the interview, how um, the Eucharist was actually a psychedelic um, mushroom thing, you know? Really? Yeah, there's some history on that, but it's a little squirrely. Um, that would make sense, though. Like, yeah, if people, you know, you gave them a little of the, uh, I guess, moldy rye bread or wherever it exists, and yeah. then they have this you know, psychedelic experience, it suits it, I think. Yeah, there's a, there's a book on it called The Immortality Key, which um, says that the Eucharist really was a female-centric uh, thing, and, and uh you know, that the Eucharist was a forbidden drug, you know, kind huh. of experience. But, you know, I have not read the book, uh, but apparently there was some cover up by the church fathers, you know, in like the early peyote East, in a yeah. way, the way peyote is used. So I guess, I guess my, the larger point I'm trying to make with, with going into that discussion is that psychedelics has a long history, have a long history. And the only way you can really understand them as a potential treatment for addiction or for mental health issues is to sort of pick at the through line through history, mm. where they came from, what's been going on with them for the last 50 years in America, what the psychedelic ther therapeutic underground was all about. Because even though these drugs were made illegal, specifically like LSD and psilocybin, even though they were made illegal in the mid to late 60s, um, people were such believers in the transformative power of them that a therapeutic underground continued to exist all the way through the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to today. Mm. And how much that, the way that that structure developed, how much that that influenced what we have today in terms of the way these drugs are being studied mm. and the way they're being applied is something uh, of, you know, of interest. And Jesse Jarno, who literally wrote a book, the book, probably the only book that traces the through line of psychedelics from the mid-60s through the present day, um, impeccably sourced, stuff. Um, that's why I thought he would be a good guest, you know, and, yeah. and he turned me on to a podcast, which 
goes into the darker side of the psychedelic therapeutic stuff that's been going on. Like some of the PTSD um, studies that have been done where the data was presented in an exceptionally rosy way, like this podcast um, called Cover Story by the New, by New York Magazine mm-hmm. came out about a year ago. They go find some of the participants in the study who paint a very different picture of their experience and how it was not necessarily a positive experience for them. Uh, and also there's a, 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 you know, anytime there's a therapeutic relationship involving a power differential and involving a strong drug that increases your suggestibility, there is the potential for abuse and a lot of um, power abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse has also been noted in the underground psychedelic movement. Mm. You know, how much that of that, how much that exceeds what goes on in the normal therapeutic community is kind of an open question. But anyway, with all this stuff swirling around out there, I thought it might be a good idea to talk to somebody who has basically had his fingers in the, in the, on the pulse of the psychedelic movement in America, uh, by virtue of writing the book, by virtue of the fact that he is um, an expert in the area, yeah. he, he know he, he knows what the current price, wholesale price of LSD is, yeah. and it's a little different from our typical guest because this guy is not in recovery. I mean, he is definitely not in recovery, right? But know? like I was saying before, it's still you know on message for us. We're studying, you know. Right. We talk about that. Yes. The, the, the progression of you know psychedelics, drugs, you know, all of that stuff. The criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. All of this for me figures into the whole picture that we're sort of getting at. Right. You know. Yeah, and that was kind of my feeling as well. I, you know, I just don't. I don't want our audience to sort of think we've sort of drifted off into left field with well, this stuff. But they you didn't know what? until you said that. He's a <laughs> he's a fascinating guy, very knowledgeable in his field. Uh, also a big dead freak, which you know appealed to me on a number of levels. So we talk a little bit about the Grateful Dead. We talk a lot about psychedelics. We talk a little bit about the wharf rats and recovery that kind of sprung up in the Grateful Dead community. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, it was a great discussion. Uh, he was, Jesse was very generous with his time and I appreciated him sitting down with us. Yeah, and this is our first time With having. Me, uh, not us. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it, it, this is something I've seen done on uh, some of my favorite podcasts, where one one host will do the interview, and then you know we sort of talk about it. So I think this would be a cool way to get more uh, interviews going. Maybe I'll do one, but um, it's going to be a great interview. I'm not a Grateful Dead guy, um, but I don't think you need to be to you know really get something out of. Um, out of this. No, and in fact, I talked to him a lot less about the Grateful Dead than I wanted to. Yeah. It's mostly on topic. Right. For, for the psychedelic thing. Right. And so with that, here is Jesse Jarno. My guest this week is uh, Jesse Jarno. He's the uh, a prolific writer on music and on psychedelia, and he's the author of three books, right? Three right now. Yeah. Uh, what, what, the one that I hope to be talking to him about mostly today is, is Heads, A Biography of Psychedelic America. That came out in 2016, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, most recent book is Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, The Blacklist, and The Battle for the Soul of America, which takes a look at uh, Pete Seeger and the Weavers and all the stuff that was going down in the 1950s. Yes? Yeah. And actually uh, uh, ends in kind of the last chapter um, overlaps with the beginning of the psychedelic therapy movement. One of the, one of the members of the Weavers, uh, actually two of the members of the Weavers, um, did LSD therapy in 1962, 63 and 64, kind of in the last years of the band. So it was, which I didn't know when I started writing that book, it was kind of a, a completely unexpected huh. 
you know, path crossing. That's an interesting dovetailing, um, but very, very cool. Um, also, you wrote a book on Yolo Tango and the rise of indie rock called A Big Day Coming. That was, I think, your first book in 2012 yeah. or so. Uh, in addition to that, you are a, a DJ on WFMU, which is a freeform radio station uh, in New York, a host of the Fro Show, right? Uh, Fro Show. Fro Show, excuse me. I, I, <laughs> oh, good. Uh, and, you are, uh, and that's on Tuesdays, 9 p.m. to midnight? Indeed, and uh, archived at WFMU.org forever thereafter. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I, th I think a lot of our listeners who are not from the New York area probably have no idea what WFMU is all about. Um, you want oh, to yeah. them a little bit? Sure. It's a, it's a long-time non-commercial radio station. It started life as a college radio station. And in the 60s, late 60s, went completely freeform, which is, you know, just beyond genre, beyond, <laughs> beyond concept man, um, and has miraculously more or less survived intact for the last half century. And 30 years ago at this point, the college that they were affiliated with, Uppsala College in New Jersey, went out of business, um, which is crazy that colleges can go out of business, but the station bought its, uh, its broadcasting license out from the college. And since then, since the 90s, has been a completely independent listener-supported radio station in a world that um, is increasingly rare. <laughs> it's increasingly yeah. non-supportive of non-commercial listener-supported radio stations. Um, and it's uh, a wonderful sanctuary for, for strange and delightful music. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing uh, a thing that it, that it exists at all. I mean, the, the only somewhat par parallel to that would be something like WBAI, but they're even a little more, um, you know, focused Wait. on normal programming. <laughs> right, and, and, and extreme, you know, and obviously extremely politicized, which FMU yeah. is in a very, very, very different way. But to me, yeah, exactly. BAI or, you know, KPFA in the Bay Area or, you know, places like that, you know, it's, you know which is again, a super different model, but kind of this lasting institution of the 60s in a way, this sort of, like, to me, that's one of the things that's really special about FMU is that it still kind of carries this, like, freaky, experimental, you know, open-bordered, you know, thing going forward from the 60s that's, you know, it's somewhat anarchistic. You know, it's a real organization and all of that at this point, but that, that energy to me is still very much there in a, in a continuous way. Yeah, you, and you DJs get pretty much licensed to play whatever you want, right? Oh, I, yeah, yeah. There's listening to some uh, shows there where a guy would just play like uh, like a drone for two hours or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, just all kinds of crazy stuff. But uh, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. We're only obligated to give the station ID at the top of the at the top of every hour and um, observe the FCC obscenity rules. And even because it's a non-commercial station, you can get away. You can get away with a couple of. Uh, non-literal curse words in the late night hours, which is, uh, which is fucking lovely. <laughs> non-literal as opposed to literal, literal. as you know, uh, I, 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 I don't give a shit would be a figurative use. Um, uh -huh. I shat on that would be a, you know, I took a shit would be a, a literal use, you know, you know, the, the, the difference between the, the metaphorical act and the physical, physical act. Um, do, you, do you guys have training on that? Like we do, we do. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not you know, it only takes a few minutes, but yes, we are, we are, we are all briefed on that. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a new level of thinking about language that I never had to do before I, uh, before I yeah, had my own sure. radio show. <laughs> so, so in addition to those hats uh, that you wear uh, quite well, you're also the host of the good old Grateful Dead cast, which is the official podcast of the Grateful Dead uh, currently in its 
well, you just wrapped up what the fourth season? Fifth, fifth, fifth season. Fifth we're, season. We're, we're starting our third year. We started in the summer of 2020. Or we, well, we started working on it a while before that, but it launched in the summer of 2020, which uh, completely overwhelmed my life. And it's a lovely thing to be part of. Well, it, it's certainly apparent from listening to it how much time and care you you and uh, and your buddies uh, put into the, putting that together. Um, you know, it's it's as as a a dead freak myself. I uh, I've been immense, enjoying it immensely, and uh, I think I was listening to you on a podcast with maybe O'Teal Burbridge, who's the the bass player for uh, for Dead and Company, and and he described you guys as like the uh, the Ken Burns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Ken Burns of Deadheads, which uh, it definitely seems fitting. I mean, there's uh, the way yeah. you sort of run down all the uh, the the details and go off on tangents, and it's sort of like the way you, you have the mind of the Deadhead works is completely encapsulated in that show. It is it's uh, really enjoyable, really yeah. enjoyable. Thank you. Less uh, less free jazz erasure than Ken Burns, but uh, we're, we're, <laughs> right. we're 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 still we're going for it. It's it's, it's a great honor to be able to do that and, and to have a, a reason to get as granular as we've been getting, kind of build on the shoulders and build on the work of you know decades of, of dead freak journalists and that came before us. Well, I guess you're somewhat lucky in so far as like when it comes to the Grateful Dead, there is no shortage of source material available, both uh, uh, on the audio front and and they were sort of um, pretty good record keepers, I would imagine, uh, in, in addition to being, um, you know, recording just about everything that was ever played. But uh, yes, you know, some of that stuff, the, the, the record keeping is a little more disorganized than the music recording and new things, but it's, you know, Still, a, still a fun ocean of, of stuff to go swimming through. Yeah, I, I, I don't doubt it. Um, so I reached after you after reading Heads, well, or listening to Heads, really, because I commute to nice. New, Jer New Jersey a few days a week. So it was, uh, I have hours and hours on the Cross Bronx to listen to your uh, <laughs> your, <laughs> your audio book, um, and it really is a it's a sprawling history of psychedelics in America. You know, sort of stretching from you know, San Francisco to New York City to Europe and from the early 60s to the present day. Uh, well, 2016 at any rate. Um, you know, and the book really kind of sat really well with me for a few reasons. And, and one of them was sort of the breadth and the depth to which you got into the history of psychedelics. And second, because you take that history all the way up to the present, because uh, a lot of books on psychedelics sort of focus on that era in the late 60s and the early 70s. Uh, but you sort of trace the through line through the last 50 years and tie together the origins of the psychedelic movement uh, up to the present day where psychedelics are enjoying a, a really massive renaissance, um, which I don't think was was as evident in 2016 as maybe it is in 2022. Yeah, it certainly, I mean, it was kind of beginning to, to dawn when I was kind of in the finishing stages of writing. I wrote it between like 2013 and probably was still, well, no, probably by the very beginning of 2016, everything was locked in place. But by, you know, by the end of 2015, I was still kind of putting the final pieces in. And by that point, it was definitely very obvious that something was happening um, beyond just kind of a couple of, you know, scattered, scattered people doing, you know, reviving research. And in the, you know, the five years since the, the original book was published, six years now, like, you know, that landscape has completely transformed in every, in just so many different ways, you know, from on the therapy side, on the, you know, the, the legality side, even, you know, just the, the, the cultural acceptance side. Um, 
So, in a, you know, it's hard to say I was like writing the book at like the last possible moment before the psychedelic renaissance happened because it, it was, you know, that that phrase was, was already well in circulation by the time I was finishing up. Um, but uh, it certainly accelerated beyond, beyond my wildest dreams since I, since I finished. Um, and sort of, and sort of what you said before, just to that point, you know, a large goal of the book was to, was to take the story to the, to the present moment. Um, and the first chapter of the book, actually, um, the sixties are, the, you know, linear, linearly speaking, if such a thing is actually possible. Uh, the sixties are dispensed with after the first chapter in the book and the rest of the book right. is, you know, into the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and beyond. And, you know, it was, you know, trying to get, you know, equalish representation to all these different periods. The idea that this psychedelics have been powerful and, you know, had an enormous impact across all this, this whole time. Yeah. And that's the, that's the other interesting thing is that, you know, the, all, all the way through, I mean, there's been a, certainly a big uh, uh, increase in public consciousness about psychedelics, thanks to, you know, in large part to Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind, which came out in 2018. And that was, that made a big splash. Um, but, you know, there has always been a underground psychedelic therapy movement, and certainly psychedelics have always been around, you know, even during that whole time period. And, you know, there are reasons, I guess, that we can get into why all of a sudden it's become a, a massive thing in, in, in public consciousness. Uh, but it's always been there, right? I mean, right. it went away. And that largely was my, my interest and the sort of the, the, the scope of the book is, is really more about kind of, I guess, underground practitioners and, and sort of these cultures that emerged around psychedelics than it is necessarily around about sort of the psychedelic therapy movement. And for a long time, those two things were, were intersecting. If you were involved in the psychedelic therapy movement, by pretty much by definition, you were kind of part of this underground that was, you know, there, there were you know, a lot of strange allies in, in that world because of that, because of the, the you know, the, let's say alleged criminality of psychedelics um, in that era. And, you know, since then, those two things, those two kind of worlds may parted a, a little bit as, as psychedelics become a little bit more institutionalized and more formalized and, you know, legal, like actually legal. Um, but, my, my interest was, was very much in the, uh, in sort of the, the counterculture that developed around them and kind of the way these sort of structures and guidelines and other things emerged in, in this very ad hoc improvisational way over the course of, of, of decades. It's, it's almost, you know, in that sense, it's more like the folklore of like a, a of a culture than it is about, you know, documented medicine, which is more what it's become. But it's uh, but lots of crossover between those two places, and that blurry space kind of between them is is very fascinating to me. Yeah, it is fascinating because on the one hand, you have you have sort of the narrative of the dominant culture, right, which doesn't really um, explore too much of these subcultures or or allow this in in sort of the public historical record. Uh, but but you also have this weird intersection between psychedelic and pop culture that occurred you know, in the late 60s for a brief period of time, it's like they touched and then kind of seemingly flew apart, but not really, because there is so much of psychedelic culture that's woven into mainstream American culture that people don't even realize is psychedelic culture. Right. Well, I mean, that, you know, that is, that is a huge thing about it, is that, you know, really the years 1968 to 
or 66, 67 through, I don't know, 72, 73 ish psychedelic um, aesthetics, separate from like psychedelic, you know, the actual substances, kind of the, 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 this visual culture, this musical culture that kind of emerged around psychedelics did become the dominant part of American popular culture and global popular culture. You know, you look around the world and you see, you know, advertised and influenced by Peter Max or, you know, things like, you know, things like that. And, you know, the spread of the Beatles, you know, across, across the continents. Um, and that, you know, I say this pretty early in the book, but like the idea of psychedelics spread way faster and further than the actual psychedelics themselves did. Like this idea that there was this, pill you could take or this, you know, substance you could take that would transform your mind, you know, that multiply, that got around way more quickly than, than the psychedelics themselves did. Um, and I said, that idea has been around for millennia as, you know, as, you know, you can find that on every continent in, in, in many countries that there's these, you know, mysterious substances that, you know, the people before us took, um, and, you know, which is, which is part of it too, which is a big part of psychedelic discovery of the, 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 the 50s and 60s. But just the, the, the general notion of psych psychedelics really um, penetrated uh, culture in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, both the positive ideas of it, you know, this idea of, of you know, unity and, 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 and you know, oneness with, 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 with everything, really. Right. Um, and, and, and visually, you know, kind of, you know, way, the way people have visualized these experiences, those things really like entrenched in, in, in the mainstream to the point where it became, it's ubiquitous. Like you, you look at like documents of mainstream culture from, from 72, 73, 74, and the psychedelic stuff is like encoded right in there. Like you, you know, I'm a baseball baseball fan as well you get baseball cards and you see you can kind of right. see like just the, the the psychedelic color palette kind of coming into even sports culture like that and i think one effect of that was that it people almost took it for granted like it was kind of almost just like a background thing when i was growing up in the 80s just kind of like this you know just this look that was was part of everything the same way that there could be like you know a 19th century barn or mid-century modern architecture or typography or, or something like that. That was, it was, it represented this like period of American history. Um, and that, that's, I mean, that's just, a, that's a powerful thing by itself that, 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 the, that it got so far in and so far like under the skin of the culture that it's like this identifiable thing um, like that. But then all kinds of counter, counter, balance to it as well in terms of well, reality and the, and the Reagan era and everything yeah. else. So it's a, at, at the same time it was taking over, um, you know, the art, art and culture, uh, it was being viciously repressed by, uh, by the man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right. you know, the, the, the war on drugs, it started with Nixon and, and carried on through the Reagan era, which is sort of when I was out there doing my psychedelic stuff, you know, on, on the dead tours and so on. Um, but we were also very conscious of the fact that there was the, that the dominant culture, while it was, you know, using the art and, and that was all represented well, uh, that they were looking to sort of stamp out the, the psychedelics themselves and sort of remove that from the, from the, from the other part, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, there's, there's, it's always going to be a little hypocritical like that, I suppose, you know, it's, you know, I, 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 I cause I feel like 
in one on one hand, the dominant culture is celebrating those things and celebrating kind of the, the results of those things, but on the other hand, is is also kind of suppressing. You know, I I see, you know, I do see parallels with like you know like gay culture or things like that, where sure. it's you know, where it's a thing where it's on one hand, there's lots of celebration of 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 things that the the gay culture produced. You know, you know, especially in the seventies and eighties, you know, kind of the emergence of disco and all these other things. But then there's this like extreme ignorance about it and this 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 you know the horrible other side of, of the AIDS epidemic where it's you know this extreme where there's flat out denial and, and suppression and oppression where you have both both sides of it kind of interacting in the culture of the super positive influence and then kind of the the, the negative conservative side the conservative backlash against it. And it's you know and that's that's one of the, that's another thing that made psychedelics even more powerful in the eighties and especially made the grateful bed more powerful in, in the eighties is that it was, it, it was this sort of, I almost said unified underground, but it's not a unified underground. It's it, 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 it created, but it did create this kind of underground space for outsiders of all kinds. And, and that got associated largely with the grateful bed um, in the eighties. They were kind of like the mainstream of the psychedelic underground, but there are, it was a huge tent and, you know, there were, there were, you know, there were psychedelic scenes in the, you know, the, the gay dance music underground is another place where there was like a huge psychedelic world. Um, and, and lots of these different little pockets and connected by these substances, you know, that was the thing that they had in common, um, the sort of ecstatic communion with psychedelics. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to my first, dead show you know i was 17 years old i was at a, uh, a catholic high school and i was i was very sort of sheltered on long island i hadn't really had exposure to much and um you know i, I went to it was a it was the the three uh 329 85 coliseum show and uh that that was the weird show that um Matt Kelly was there and Mickey was whipping drumsticks at him. I, you know, it's sort of a famous, you know, but they, those were general. Seen, seen, seen the video. Yes. <laughs> so those were general admission shows. Right. So, you know, I, I show up in the, in the parking lot with a friend and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm like completely blown away by this scene in front of me. You know, I had no idea what this was all about. Somebody, uh, uh, gave me a, a window, a hit of window pane. I took that and I, I went inside and because it was general admission, I wandered right, to Jerry's side in like the second row and I just sat down and and then the whole thing just you know exploded and and you know but it but I guess my point is like you know you um you can travel around uh the country in the 80s and and mostly what you're going to find is uh you know the Reagan stuff and and you know what's going on in the dominant culture but then you have this show that comes to town like the traveling minstrels or like you know like the bread and puppet theater like you went into in your book and, and it's just like this island this island oasis where you know i wouldn't say there are no laws but the laws certainly don't seem to apply and you're and you're just in this in this environment and and uh, i i i being from such a relatively conservative background uh it just kind of really blew my doors wide open and that was it it, it i was right on the bus after <laughs> like it did, didn't yeah. do anything beyond that you know yeah i mean the term that i guess i learned in college sometimes is, is a temporary autonomous zone which is okay. a, a, a phrase by phrase by the, the theorist hakeem bay who actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. um but this idea that you know there are these spaces that that there's a 
more or less a criti- enough of a critical mass to like separate that tempor- temporarily separate that physical space from the, the, the laws of the local jurisdiction and, and kind of create its own gravitational center and its own logic for however long it exists. And, you know, Occupy Wall Street was exactly that. Mm-hmm. You know, Burning Man is that. Rainbow Gatherings are that. You know, Bread and Puppet is that. The Great, you know, Grateful Dead world is very much that. And in a lot of ways, kind of wherever you go and take acid with your friends is kind of that sort of what you're creating in a way. And, you know, there, there, there's some consciousness and intention required if, you know, with only a couple of people <laughs> to, to, to make it intentionally happen. But that notion of being able to like have a space that's outside, that's, that's removed, that's, you know, follows the principles of, or doesn't follow the principles, you know, follows, follows its own principles is, uh, is, is a really powerful thing. And, and, you know, psychedelics are, um, a way to create that space mentally just for your, for, for yourself, but their presence as an illegal thing, as this, you know, thing that you can't just like walk into a store and buy that creates kind of the, the, the temporary autonomous zone by itself. These sort of like gestures, these group gestures that people are taking part in that are, you know, outside that, that everyday reality, you know, with the grateful dead, that, that, you know, the taping, Concert taping is another sort of boundary of a temporary autonomous. And these all these things that kind of just bend the rules enough to like open up your mind in that in that kind of way. And I think when people went to dead shows, there was enough of that happening in all these different ways. You know, it's psychedelics just being one of them. Another one being you know, kind of the emergence of you know like a barter economy, which psychedelics are connected to. But um, it's yeah, that's and then that that really is a lot of my interest in in the way psychedelics were able to kind of like cast that spell or one 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 aspect of, of casting that spell. Yeah, you speak of that in the book, like the hip economy and and how that sort of exists both within you know capitalist framework, but wholly outside of it at the same time. Uh, yeah, what, what is the hip economy? Well, I mean, so the hip economy as was, was conceptual is it's a little. I feel it's a little harder to, to talk about in the in, in current 21st century terms. Uh, but in the in the 60s and 70s, the notion of, of hip economics is, is what Jerry Garcia called it. And he described it as basically moving your money around really fast within your local community. That's kind of one way to think about it. And for him, it was this, the, the notion of kind of money coming into their community through uh, rock music, which was, you know, in the same not quite as illegal as psychedelics, but, but, but thought of at least in those years as kind of, you know, a little bit sort of outlaw and um, psychedelics. And it it creates this sort of, you know, bubble of money. And, you know, that, for example, you know, Owsley was, was the, the Grateful Dead's LSD chemist. Uh, Well, he would would call himself the world's LSD chemist, probably. Um, but, you know, you, you make money selling LSD and then you kind of put that money back into your community, you know, and in the, in the example of the 60s and the hate, that would, you know, that LSD money would then go to, you know, some of them to the diggers who were kind of this anarch, anarchistic organization that would do free food every day. Some would support an underground newspaper. It would support artists, you know, that kind of thing. And over the course of, of decades, that model of, you know, basically making money selling drugs and then using that as a way to, fund other artistic activities um 
created this sort of ongoing thing. And that, that model of it still very much exists. Um, and I think in the 60s and 70s, especially, there was a lot more of a notion of being able to really, like, actually escape from the dominant culture and the dominant economy and be able to kind of, like, run your own little bubble and have your, you know, your own your own team. You know, so in the Grateful Dead world, that's, you know, they get money, they give it out to their the people who make their equipment or the posters or, you know, it's a, a way of s- sustaining a community. Um, in the 21st century, I think that gets more complicated as the economy gets more complicated and, and, and such. But um, to me, at the very least, like things like Bitcoin and crypto kind of at least begin their life kind of connected to the hip economy. Like one of the things that was happening at the very tail end of writing heads was the emergence of Silk Road and or the, the digital Silk Road and where drugs were what created value for Bitcoin. Like the first, the real, the thing that gave Bitcoin its initial value, you know, it, you know, was, was, was people selling drugs online. And I think that's kind of, that's disappeared a little, you know, you can still do it for sure, but I, you know, that's certainly not, not what is driving the, the crypto finance market anymore. <laughs> um, but that idea that the, there's this thing that's outside of, of the mainstream economy that is almost starting to get institutionalized in, 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 in recent years with, with, yeah. Yeah. In, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and to sort of, you know, look at a parallel to that. I mean, uh, you know, psychedelic therapy also sort of always existed, uh, under the radar. Um, you know, even back in, in the sixties when, well, LSD became illegal when in 1965 or 66. Yeah. Well, g- gradually it was, it was, a, I think it was first a state by state thing. And then there was a federal one. So yeah, 66, 67, October 6th, 66 is often cited as like the first, LSD illegality day, which is California specific, but um, pretty, pretty quickly thereafter, or else. Which is sort of what shut down, you know, any of the research that was being done into the efficacy of LSD as a as a treatment for mental health conditions, right? I mean, there was a, a relatively fertile period in from the late '50s to the early '60s, and then it sort of dropped off the map, and yet it continued underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yeah, and you know, something to to, to really emphasizes how big that world was before things got, you know, a little upside down and, and, and all of that. Um, there's a, a great book called Acid Hype. I'm not remembering the, the author's name off the top of my head, but it's a scholarly book that examines kind of basically LSD from its invention by Albert Hoffman. And, you know, well, it was invented in 38. It was synthesized for real in 43. And so it's really a study of those kind of 20 years, roughly between 1943 and um, 1964, 65, when, when things begin to go haywire. And it talks a lot about how LSD was treated as a miracle drug in, in the popular press, the very, very popular press, places like Life magazine, you know, lots of national publications, um, very credulous stories about, you know, you know, penicillin for the mind or, you know, all, you know, all these kinds of, you know, this is still very much the optimism of post-World War II, you know, America can do anything, the world can do anything. It's, you know, everything is, everything is on the up and up. And then kind of over the early 60s, things do start to skew a little bit. And even, you know, 
leading up to that, you know, moment of illegality, even before that, things were kind of going a little off the rails in terms of, of, of research um, and, 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 and how possible it was to get things done in, in that world. Um, so, you know, once, once people discovered the fun of LSD, uh, it leaked out from those, you know, situations very quickly. And that's how you end up with, with Timothy Leary. That's how you end up with, with Ken Kesey. That's how you end up with, you know, a lot of the really bad side effects, side effects, side products of MK Ultra. you know, the government's, you know, various darker research patterns, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, but those 20 years are really, there's a, a lot happening in those sort of the, which is, I think, a lot often thought of as the prehistory of LSD. I think a lot of people think of, oh, LSD um, in the 60s. But there was so much happening before that um, that it's almost, it's actually kind of amazing that um, what happened in the 60s was enough to kind of like wipe that out of people's minds, given how kind of how mainstream LSD almost already was by that point. Yeah, I mean, the classic story is that Albert Hoffman discovered it sort of by accident. Um, and, and while working for Sandoz Laboratories. But um, what was he working on when he discovered it by accident? Was he working on other psychedelics or was it no, something completely no, it was, unrelated? It, completely, completely un, unrelated. Um, shoot, I, I don't remember the exact thing it, he, he was working on, but it, like, I believe, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not a science person, but it was, he was not intending to, to, to do that at all. I guess, I guess when he realized, um, I'm just kind of interested in how it got from uh, an Albert Hoffman mistake to being uh, uh, used, you know, people recognized its potential for, for being used in, in psychedelic therapy and mental, mental health stuff and how it sort of yeah, jumped. You know? Sure. Okay. Well, so he had, the story as he told it was that he um, invented it in 1938 and I don't think it was ever synthesized in 1938. I think it was really just like a thing on paper. And then a few years later, he decided to re-synthesize it or, or to synthesize it, I think for the first time, possibly. Um, and let me turn off. Can you give me one second? Sure, of course. I just yep. say, turn, turn that beeping thing off. Yep. <laughs> And this would be a good time for me to tell you that apparently I'm going to kicked out in five minutes, but I'm going to restart it because oh. I didn't, I thought you only had to upgrade if it was more than two people, but apparently zoom. Oh, is, you know, strange. I don't, yeah. It was weird. weird. Anyway. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So he, you know, basically the stories he told us, he got some on his fingers, like tiny little minuscule amount and, 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 had what he described as a very mild trip, or what he later understood to be a very mild trip. Uh, a few days later, he he synthesized he he did it intentionally. He took it intentionally, took a large, a larger amount, which was two hundred fifty micrograms, which he thought was to me, you know, a tiny amount, but turned out to be an extremely powerful amount, which now referred to as basically a god dose. That's kind of like, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of LSD to take at once, if you've, especially if you've never taken LSD before. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a really powerful experience, as happens. And that's, that's what's now remembered as Bicycle Day, where he, he had to 
leave work, right? You know, right. You know, have his assistant help him get home on, on a bike. And so he, he ends up with this, this powerful thing where it created this incredible explosion in his mind. And it's, you know, doesn't know what to do with it or what it is. And there's actually still a lot of history to be researched in this kind of murky moment. Mike mm-hmm. Jay, who wrote a great book about mescaline, just called Mescaline, has done some work in the Sandoz archives about kind of the, the, the early, the earliest iterations, like, you know, what happened in 1943 and has written some articles about that. And, you know, I, there are stories of Hoffman, I believe going to the, the you know, after going to his bosses, I think there are even stories of him meeting with the government and in that era about this, this thing and not really knowing how to understand it or what it was. And other than that, it created this incredible thing that happened in the user's mind. And my understanding is that basically Sandoz was like, we have this new wonder drug, but we don't really know what it does. Order a sample, try it for yourself. Let us know what you figure out. That's kind of the. So you could just write to Sandos and they'd yeah. send you some acid. Okay. I mean, if you Why were, not? you know, if you were, a, you know, if you were, a, if you were a, a properly qualified scientist, yeah, you know, ah, if, you, okay. if you had some, you know, institutional affiliation, or if you could convince them that you had some institutional <laughs> affiliation, there's lots of stories about people writing to Sandos and just kind of coming up with a cover story and having them, and then receiving some ungodly amount of acid in return. Um, but that was basically what LSD was was. It was it was blank. It was you know, and it turns out that's what LSD is. Is you know, it's um, it's very much um, it's very much what the user brings to it. So if you if people involved in the CIA are getting involved right. in LSD, you kind of can kind of guess where they're going to end up going with it, which is you know not the same place that a Buddhist trying LSD is going to end up at or or a clinical therapist, or, you know, there's really a, a range of range of people who were, who were getting into it in those years and resulted in this extremely bizarre range of, of, of stories that we now know about, like early LSD use. You would think because the mindset with which you enter into, you know, a communion with uh, LSD or any other psychedelic is so important that it, it wouldn't be something that you could replicate over a large number of people to, who are dealing with like very serious mental health conditions like PTSD. Uh, but there are sort sort of commonalities of the experience, right. That, that sort of manifest among everybody that takes it. Yeah. Well, depends on the dosage and it depends on a lot of things. But yeah. There are, there are, there are certainly commonalities, but in general, I think kind of the, the, the global understanding of LSD now is that it's a non-specific amplifier, is that it, it, it takes what's there and expands outward. So that really is the, the, that is the set and the setting part, is that you know, the, the, the set is very much you know, what those pieces that, that you're starting with. And that, if that, those are very different for everybody. If you are somebody who's been, you know, the CIA is attempting to use LSD as a mind control substance on you. That's a, you know, that's a very different starting point than, you know, <laughs> right. Then, then, then taking, you know, taking it with a, uh, with an underground therapist in the, you know, the, the hills outside Berkeley, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is, right. which is another, another iteration. Um, um, yeah. And that, and that, that is also interesting because, you know, 
LSD is made illegal in the late 60s. Most other psychedelics alongside that are also Schedule One, uh, and yet um, it survives in the underground. Yeah, well, there's a, a, if you will, and then I'm sure. not sure how the therapy continued. As well. Okay, so the therapy there there are there are a couple of ways. So yeah, uh, the therapeutic world, uh, LSE manufacturing continued outside of the United States um, after the '60s. It was still being manufactured in um, Czechoslovakia well into the '70s, uh, probably even in the later later '70s, um, and other places as well. And I think that you know that those supplies were able to feed underground therapists. And there was certainly a group of people who, you know, really believed in LSD therapy, especially um, in the Bay Area. Uh, Leo Zeff was kind of a, a, a big one um, who weren't about to stop doing it. That was, you know, they, they had found a good thing and they were, you know, they were not drug abusers. They were, they were making people better. They were, they were healing people and they were not, they were not going to stop for, anything like that. So um, there's a, a cool book called The Secret Chief, which is very much about that, the sort of the, 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 the underground psychedelic world of the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, really. Um, so that's kind of one, one part of this. They're kind of keeping the torch lit for the, for the therapy stuff. There were, there were enough of a community had already formed around psychedelic therapy then for, that to, for the momentum to sort of carry itself. At this point, was that therapy directed towards, um, you know, sort of what, what it's being looked at for today, like PTSD, addiction issues, or, or was it more, you know, just sort of depression or whole self-integration or something a little more? It's all of those things. It was, it was, it was kind of all of those things. That's sort of what I mean about LSD being a blank slate in the, in the, when, when Sandoz first started marketing it, um, is that people ended up with lots of different uses for it. You know, there was definitely a big uh, study in... Saskatchewan, I think, about LSD and alcoholism. We're talking in the very, very early 60s here, um, where it, it did seem like, L, you know, LSD was success, was successfully used to, in, in, in substance abuse um, therapy. And um, uh, Bill W. from, you know, from AA was, uh, was an early, early psychedelics user. My, my understanding of this part of the story is that he wanted to make it a standard part of the program until it was threatened and caused a, a political brouhaha, as you might yeah. expect. Um, there were some, some other folks uh, involved in the, in the creation of AA that didn't like yeah. the, that part of it. Um, but Wait, but you you know, can, when, sorry. He, when he originally um, had his, you know, cause a, a part of the, the 12 steps of Alcoholic Anonymous is, is uh, having a spiritual awakening as a result of practicing the steps. But Bill W's spiritual awakening, from what I understand, was, was, was caused by more like a Belladonna uh, uh, trip that he had taken when he showed up at the, uh, uh, he saw the bright light and everything, and that was his spiritual awakening. And, and so he experimented with LSD later on uh, and then wanted to incorporate all of that into the program, but they, right, point, we they were, not but, into it, but which is, a, but at the same time, is a good example of kind of a, a psychedelic community or world that existed separate from hippiedom and separate from you right. know counterculture and, and that. One thing that fascinates me a lot about the recovery movement, at least the more the non-official, like you know, twelve-step stuff, is that it is actually an anarchistic group. That there really is this mutual aid aspect to it, where it's you know. You only need two people to have a meeting. Is, right. you know, this was one of the, one of the things that I was, you know, I 
through me. I have lots and lots of friends who are in recovery. I've, you know, very, very close to this world. And that's one of the things that moves me about the recovery world in a really deep way is that it is that. It's not like AA International, sign up for our program. You know, it, 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 it's self-organizing um, in a way that's extremely inspiring and moving. Um, and seeing that emerge in the Grateful Dead context and this, this notion of the war frats or, you know, the fellowship, they call it in the fish world or mm. whatever, where they're, they're not official AA groups. They're definitely unaffiliated and, you know, following kind of, you know, they, 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 they do do the steps, but they're kind of working through their own thing. But this idea that there's this like model, and to me, that's actually something that's shared with the LSD world, kind of what I was telling about before, that there is this sort of knowledge of how this works and sort of, you know, this idea of mutual support is it, it runs really, really deep that it goes and it goes beyond the institutions of mainstream society, even though AA is very much accepted as part of mainstream society right now. I just love this idea. It's just powerful to me that it follows its own, its own thing. It is, and, and even people who don't necessarily adhere to all of the things in, in the 12 steps come together for the community of it. It's, it's, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's an instant community of people with shared experiences, and, and that is what makes it incredibly valuable, in my opinion, whether or not you would yeah. adhere to the steps or you don't. You know? and, and that's something that when I see that in the context of like a Grateful Dead-related show, like, kind of makes me cry, actually. <laughs> really, I feel like you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't consider myself part of the recovery community, but just seeing that really moves me that there's this thing that, that people can do this sober, that people can do this in, mm -hmm. on their own terms and that they can still make the Grateful Dead world, music world, like an important part of their life. And there's this community that allows that to happen, that, that, that sort of finds those connections within that world. And that's, you know, it's, there, there's something so joyous to me about that, 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 that those two things can be separated like that, you know? For sure. I mean, the Dead's music to me has always sort of transcended drugs. I mean, I, I run, you know, and, and I've gotten more um, high listening to good, a good soundboard while I'm running than I ever did at a Dead show when I was on acid. So it's, yeah. it's just so weird how that gets inside your head and stuff and, and, yeah. and all that. But yeah. So yeah, the Warfrats, great, great organization, greatest, great group of people. Yeah, very interesting discussion. I think we got a little off track though. Um, just heading back to basically how the torch for psychedelics was kept alive during the era of fairly intense prohibition. You know, Owsley Stanley was was really there. Uh, was really the first person to manufacture LSD outside successfully um, at a large scale outside of you know officially licensed Sandoz manufacturers. Um, right. And that, you know, that's, that's what created the, the, the psychedelic world was kind of, that was, you know, 1965, 1966. Um, and suddenly there was a whole world of people who were exposed to it and, and wanted to try it. And once that happened, you know, that cat was out of the bag, that wasn't, that wasn't going away. Um, and that inspired kind of the next generation of underground chemists to 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 follow follow bear down that down that rabbit hole and then you get you know people like nick sam and tim scully and then that kind of that ends up resulting 
in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was the, 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 you know, organization or disorganization or attitude or it's hard to just say exactly what the brotherhood was or wasn't but they that was kind of the the group that really organized wide-scale distribution over a long period of time or you know facilitated it in some way um yeah and i like how you went into it in the book that uh you know this wasn't just a west coast thing sort of leading east it was uh it was sort of um all all over uh, rising up at more or less the same time. And, and that always seemed kind of weird to me, like that there was the sort of this organic mind expansion that was happening simultaneously in different places. I mean, you go into the, uh, on the New York side, the, uh, the graffiti artists who were, you know, in Central Park and, and how they were, um, you know, some, somehow connected with the Brotherhood and would, were distributing LSD in, in New York City during that period. Right, yeah, no, I mean, this scene seeing the tendrils kind of spread out is, is wild. But I mean, I guess part of it for me, it's, there was such a long buildup. Like, like, I, like I was saying before, that book Acid Hype, it's just the, the, the notion of psychedelics were in the mainstream culture before psychedelics themselves really took hold. There, you know, there's a Life magazine cover in the 50, you know, in what, 1957 about, you know, Gordon Wasson's trip to discover mushrooms in Mexico, you know, psilocybin mushrooms became in, becoming famously the first white man to, to, mm. to, to take them. And so all this stuff is very much in kind of happening together. Um, there's definitely, there's also kind of a peyote moment is happening as well when people, so the peyote church is, you know, it's been used, peyote obviously been used for millennia as, as, as part of, of, you know, rituals and as part of, spiritual practices, but the, the Native American church as this protected thing for peyote users is mostly a 20th century um, evolution mm-hmm. um, where anybody who's paying attention to it beyond beyond just the, the local group. So kind of at the, so in the same moment here, late 50s, early 60s, um, people are also discovering that you can mail in or peyote from, from, from Mexico. So it's very much on kind of like the tip of the cultural tongue before the 60s kind of even explode. The same way that, I don't know, I guess I think of something like virtual reality where there's just like so much hype for it for so long that by the time there's finally it practically arrives, people are ready for it. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, 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 what do you call it? The, uh, like an Overton window kind of thing um, where it's, you know, gradually, you know, things are being shifted towards, oh yeah, there are these like, wild substances you can take that do crazy things to your to your mind and so i think by the time owsley comes around and and you know you can actually just go buy lsd in most major cities people are you know almost waiting for it uh like peter stamphol is somebody who i interviewed for for heads who's using the holy modal rounders who are a great anarchistic folk rock group and he talked about yeah oh yeah i read about mushrooms in in life magazine and i didn't know where to get any so when i finally went when i was finally able to just like buy peyote it's like oh yeah i want that <laughs> i knew what that you know i read about that I, you know uh, you know alan ginsburg wrote about peyote and mentions peyote and howl sure. it's like this sort of this like lore that's like there so kind of when once owsley comes around and shows that it's possible to like make lsd like that, the possibility that you can do that is 
it's, it's a wonder, it's a, an amazing thing. And lots of other people jump on that bus or, you know, you look through underground newspapers in that era and so much of it is this information exchange about you know, how to get high, basically. You know, there's, you know, this, I can't remember what year the Smoky Banana Peels story, you know, is Mellow Yellow, and it's that 67. You know, people are, you know, Woodrow's seeds and, you know, just experimenting. Any, yeah, all this stuff. All the stuff, and yeah, it just they're, they're, it's, it's ha- you know all kind of happening at the same time. Um, well, peyote and, wasn't uh, wasn't illegal either in the early sixties and mid. Well, then, and it's still not if you're a practitioner, an actual practitioner of the Native American Church, and right. made it that did make it all the way to the Supreme Court in eighties, nineties, but yes. It's one of very few churches that have uh, right. received right, for that, sure. that dispensation. Many, many try, but but not. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and 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 that actually, you know, created a, a. Well, it's not quite a precedent because people, you know, people have attempted to cite it as precedent. The Native right. American Church ruling yes. for 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 many years, but um, and still do. So it's. I mean, it it seemed like for a period in the in the late seventies and and into the eighties, there was a a, a group of psychedelic churches for want of a better term that existed in the east village in new york city because i remember hanging out down there with my friends in in washington square park and somebody handed us a flyer and it was they invited us to the the sacrament uh, oh is that was that the uh the, was that the dpt church the uh what were they called uh, the one that was there was like one that was on a, in a storefront i was yeah, just I, think, ta- I was i think that was it yeah i was just trying to remember the specifics of the story because i just ran into somebody whose friend had basically gotten sucked into that church, like went in that day, tried the DPT, watched the, you know, the propaganda video and became a, a church member for, for a few and is bitterly, you know, pretty, pretty bitterly opposed to it. Now <laughs> we just not, not ultimately not a great, yeah, no, it, well, it's it, been a different way to that. That one, I'm trying to heck with their name. Uh, Anyway, but yeah, they were, they, well, the, the drug was real. They, that was a real thing. You know, there were, there were, there were, there were psychedelic churches on the Lower East Side, both, well, I, both, both scammy ones and, and ones that kept things cooler. Yeah. I, I, my friend, I, I, who lives out in, in California now, I think he has the flyer still. If I can find that, I'll send it to you. You might find it interesting. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting that you sort of opened the book with the fact that, that you know, there was a, a guy in New York City with a storefront that basically you could just go in and, and buy peyote. If you, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, there was a sign in the in the in the window even. Right. And he wasn't he was a libertarian. He wasn't like uh, he wasn't trying to be culty about it. He was just like, except without libertarianism, maybe. Um, the, the, that place was called the dollar sign. The, 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 the store right. was a, a giant cash symbol that was the only sign for the store um the, the temple of the true inner light was the, was the dpt church that emerged later yeah, and that's you know familiar that and again familiar. and it's again it's in that non-specific amplifier way where it's people what people bring to psychedelics is often what they turn into you know like right. baron brucklow surrendered the dollar sign wasn't about to start a psychedelic church he was he was in it for the money you know he was he was mm-hmm. running you know and the and probably, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the thing that I find fascinating about this sort of resurgence of psychedelics in the late 60s and the early 70s is like, maybe that's just, maybe it's a sort of a reminder of, of a psychedelic past 
that we've forgotten because I don't know, I, I recently doing some research found out, uh, found this book called The Immortality Key. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's uh, sort of reconstructs the suppressed history uh, of women in the early church who consecrated um, uh, the, uh, the Eucharist was actually thought to be a, a sort of a, a um, you know, a, a psilocybin uh, oh, yeah. thing, you know, and I guess that, and then if you go back even further, although it, theory was propounded more recently, you know, McKenna's stoned ape hypothesis, right? Right. And, and, and McKenna, you know, McKenna's thing is the archaic revival. That's sort of, you know, his, his, his money phrase about this idea that we're kind of reconnecting with these like roots. And a lot of that from a historical perspective has been a little disproven <laughs> in terms of there being an actual lineage from, you know, Ape eating mushrooms to, to evolution, you know, to the to the evolution of consciousness in the in the human mind. Um, but you know, there there is certainly evidence of you know psychedelic cults in the past, and this idea that you know when you take them, this is a very powerful idea. When you take psychedelics and you feel like, oh, this is this primitive primal experience that people further back in my culture surely must have experienced this in a similar way to how I'm experiencing it now. Mm. And it's hard to say if that's true or not. It certainly feels true while taking psychedelics. That, you know, but that is also one of the effects of psychedelics, you know, is, is kind of this sort of seeming breakdown to the, to, a, a simple, to the simpler mind or something like that, to the clear mind. Well, you know. and, and seeing the interconnectedness of everything, which <laughs> yeah. you know, cer certainly is uh, is a is a pretty powerful thing. If you have a hard time sort of conceptualizing it without without a psychedelic, um, you know, and which sort of like sort of dovetails nicely into why it, it's it's a, a considered a, or it, it's been studied to be a, a good treatment for certain types of addiction, because you know, there's this, the saying that goes around in the addiction communities that the opposite of addiction is connection. And, and what better way to feel that connection than to sit down and, and you know, sort of take some, take psychedelic. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is sort of woven into our, into our prehistory, right? I mean, you just, you just look at the Maya and the Aztecs and, and the people, you know, of, of, yeah, of the so. Americas, you know, and, but, but you talk about set and setting. I mean, that's where that becomes sort of interesting because these cultures always, used it as a, you know, a rite of passage, maybe a, a youth becoming a man or something. So it's very sort of prescribed. <laughs> or, or somebody about to get, sac or somebody about to get sacrificed, you know, there's, oh, you well, know, well, right. That part too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's cause that, you know, that is a thing. It's that it's our understanding of psychedelics as they exist in the 20th and 21st century. It is easy to project that onto what we now know to be previous psychedelic cultures to assume that they were, experiencing the same things and using them the same way. And I'm sure there's crossover, you know, knowing right. what we know about human physiology and, you know, surely some things had to be the same, mm -hmm. but the, the cultural context, I just like, I have a really hard time personally, like actually thinking about that. And this is how the psychedelics fit into, you know, these, these cultures from, from, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, you know, just, I, I I can't possibly conceive of what day-to-day -day life was right. there to the point where I could then also conceive of how psychedelics might shape or affect that day-to-day -day life. Um, yeah, but it's fair, fascinating. Fair point. Fair point. Really fascinating. It, it, it really is because, you know, you, you think of what, you know, uh, Greek philosophers, you know, um, you know, there was, there's some thinking that they, they also partook in mm -hmm. sac sac sacrimonial uh, or 
a sacramental uh, psychedelic use, and that's sort of how they developed that. Uh, uh, you know the schools of thought, Socrates and all that. But but you're right. There is no frame of. Re I mean, there's no way to sort of, you know, especially in cultures that didn't leave written records, to sort of you know put our understanding on them is is maybe not the way to go. But, um, but you know, but it's that's it's interesting though because that's a this is something I was thinking about a lot when when writing heads is that cultures in the present moment something that's really important for any culture is coming up is is understanding its origins and its origin story and that's you know that's what is make that's what makes something a culture and so you do get a lot of these groups in the present moment and i'm not just talking about psychedelics where it's valuable to them to be able to understand themselves in a historical lineage you know this is a weird comparison but that's a lot of, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of that in Mormonism, you know, for example, right. just in terms of being able to like, you know, connect to your family tree and understanding like your genetics and understanding, you know, how all that stuff fits together. And groups really want to research that and find their, uh, find their past and see how their present moment, how, how things got to their present moment. And that leads to a lot of really interesting research that I wouldn't necessarily say holds up to historical scrutiny. And I don't just, and again, not just psychedelics. That's the, you know, that's um, in the psychedelic realm that would be, you know, I love Terrence McKenna. He's one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite thinkers. I'm, he's such an, in, 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 he was such an engaging, yeah, just such an engaging thinker, but he's clearly starting from the end point that he wants to start from in that research and that, you know, I have experienced the psychedelic revival, the archaic right. revival in the present 20th century sense. I want to know what history that is. So if you're coming at it from that angle, you kind of see these clues, clues, yeah. you know, you know, scare quotes around them, but it's, he's also working backwards from personal experience, which yeah. is maybe not the most objective way to sort of get a sense of what, how it really was, but you know, but at the same time, that can also be valuable because he, you know, in, Ter in Terrence's case, he was a he was able to present skepticism along with that. Mm -hmm. You know, in, you know, the idea that he was then disproven to me that doesn't necessarily invalidate Terrence McKenna as a person or as a thinker. You know, sure. he was he was he was a prankster. He was a trickster. He was you know he was, he was certainly a funny about this, which is one thing that I think differentiates psychedelics and that kind of stuff from other pursuits in that way is there is this self consciousness and sense of humor and skepticism. I think that does come with, with it, or at least did with, with McKenna, um, where it doesn't feel quite as dangerous, maybe in that same way, like th though you, that uh, does maybe take a turn into the, the very, very present moment of where there, you now see things like, you know, sort of these right wing psychedelic, movements and moments where you get like that you know shaman dude in the january 6th insurrection and and you know where you get a well, that's a real part of psychedelia as well and that is you know again that then i take back what i said about about psychedelic about what, what i said a minute ago about you know at least there being a sense of humor and and the skepticism there because you do see that kind of same historical attempt to create as history in these very damaging ways that I, I do see psychedelics being, being put into, into that world. There's a lot of, a lot of writing about, about right wing psychedelia, which goes right back to the beginning, which goes right back to Albert Hoffman. It goes right back to 
you know, that's there all along as well. This kind of undercurrent of, of um, not quite establishment thinking, because it's not establishment thinking, but, you know, patriarchal thinking or, or, mm -hmm. or, or older, older, more dangerous lines of thinking, I think. Well, there's always, there's always been a dark side, right? Uh, um, you know, you look at, you know, Manson is probably the most classic example of, of you know, because you, you can become, you become very suggestible under the influence of psychedelics and there are bad actors that can, can exploit that to their own ends. And that sort of brings me up to the present day with, with some, some of the problems with psychedelic therapy that, that, the, think that the movement's going through now. I mean, you had sent me a link to that, uh, that podcast called Cover Story, I guess by Io Tillett Wright. And um, they sort of took a look at the underground psychedelic therapy movement and, you know, found some patriarchal power abuse going on there. Um, you know, and, and I thought some of it might have been a little overwrought because, you know, in any therapeutic relationship, you know, the, there's always been problems with people abusing power because there's such a, a, a power differential between, you know, the therapist uh, and, and the patient. Um, but, you know, they also, they also sort of take a little dive after the, after the sort of sex abuse scandals, they take a look at, uh, the financial, um, dark side of the, of the current therapy movement and how, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of money to be made in this new frontier by pharmaceutical companies who are, you know, out there, uh, patenting, um, different permutations of psilocybin and then sort of taking them off the market, sort of precluding research into those areas. And, um, you know, you talk about like the, the straight world sort of getting a hold of it and, and enforcing its own paradigm on top of it. It, it. it seems as though that's a real nascent problem with the way psychedelics is heading in this country right now. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Oh uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I was just, there's a thread that I was just looking at on Twitter the other day the name of the company mind med i think is the name of the company yeah. patent patenting <laughs> at least what this hippie knows to as uh uh hippie hippie flipping uh which, candy which, flipping the candy well okay well i guess there's, there's hippie flipping which is i guess the mushrooms and mdma in one oh, move okay. or and then candy flipping which is lsd and mdma in one move yeah, but yeah, things like that, like, you know, attempting to patent certain combinations of drugs or patent the idea of like a certain process for the therapy. It's, you know, it's a money grab. It's, it's exactly what you said. I totally, you know, absolutely agree with that for sure. And, at, you know, <laughs> I hate the phrase access to healthcare. It's, you know, I'm wearing a pro Bernie shirt right now, if you, <laughs> a, Bernie, a Bernie Grateful Dead shirt. So the idea of providing access to psychedelics doesn't quite sit with me, doesn't sit well with me in the same way that providing access to healthcare doesn't sit well with me. But, you know, I am all about access to psychedelics. Like, you know, I think it's, it's a, a people, access to psychedelics ultimately is, 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 is a good thing. Um, but this mainstreaming of it and this, you know, this thing where people are patenting these different processes and, and, and kind of it's turning, you know, I know Peter Thiel is one of the, the money, you know, the, the money backers of, of, of one of the groups. You know, in some ways, the idea of these things staying illegal and, you know, sort of self-regulating in that way, like, or, or black market self-regulating or something. It, there was a, there were good aspects to that. There are good aspects to that, you know, 
Like you, 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 of leaving these things in the gray area where you're not monetizing them and you're not saying, you're not arguing about who controls them or who has a patent on them or, you know, it's, but it's, this is all kind of beyond my, beyond my turf as a, as a psychedelicist, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, Except that psychedelics do continue to exist in the underground. And that's where I, that, you know, that's, that's really where my interest lies um, in them is, is the way these, you know, unaffiliated groups and people are finding ways to do powerful things around them and with them. Um, well, there are, that, still, there are yeah. two parallel tracks with therapy. There's still the underground cycle. Uh-huh. Therapy, yeah. And then there's the more standardized therapeutized uh, way of taking psychedelics and, and the studies that have gone on around uh, how, how effective they are as treatments for addiction and that sort of thing. But that, but that gets you to the point where, you know, what is the most therapeutic use of psychedelics? Is it to use it, you know, within the medical model with a therapist because set and setting is important, right? But on the other hand, you know, if you start experimenting with psychedelics uh, autodidactically, whatever, you can go down like a weird rabbit hole, right? And yeah, well, it's true. You don't know if you're helping yourself or you're just bullshitting yourself, you know? But, you you know, so I'll, but I'll throw a counter example is that, you know, the medical models, you know, this is not, to say that I don't believe in, in medical models for this stuff. Cause I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I believe in a, in a one size fits all answer for it, but uh, you can end up, you can end up in those same sketchy places through things that appear to be, you know, authorized or not authorized that appear to be above board that appear to be, you know, following more medical models. I, so I was, uh, I'm going to try to anonymize this story as, as much as I possibly can. Um, speaking with somebody who is suffering long-term depression, clinical depression, um, that I know who did, um, psychedelic therapy in, in, in New York. And it was, I don't even remember how they met, met this person, but it's, you know, it's a real, it's a real therapist. It's a real thing. And I was talking about the results of it and they were, they were saying it didn't quite solve. It didn't quite work for them. Didn't mm. didn't didn't beat. It didn't really help solve this long. It did initially, but then a few months later, they found themselves depressed again. And I was talking to them about sort of how this how it worked, and and it was ketamine. It was a, it was a, a ketamine right um, ketamine thing. And for this model, this person was, was there was no integration that mm-hmm. involved in this model. It was like really getting a ketamine infusion, and then you're going to feel better. And that was how it was kind of, that was sort of the impression that I got from the way this model worked, which is to me as goes pretty much against how I understand psychedelic therapy to be successful, which is that you, you take it in a, in a therapeutic context and you do work processing what happened, you know, and, and, and what is happening. And this was, a, this is a very, the, the description of this was a very, not that. <laughs> and, and so I guess, I mean, you know, things like that, things about sort of power abuses, or I, it's, I, I guess I see, I, I see problems on both sides, you know, yeah. and it's, um, well, I think a lot of the treatment paradigms are still being developed and they're still being, yeah. written, you know, when you look at the medical side, because they, there were, there was that large generation gap of, no official science being done in that area. You know, there was plenty of unofficial underground work being done, right? So 
you know, I guess it's sort of like um, buyer beware at this point. Like if you're going to engage in that kind of therapy, maybe you have to be really careful uh, who your therapist but, is and what you're doing. And what, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing is that psychedelics are powerful and no matter what right. context you're in, you're, whether you're doing, I mean, and I'm not saying that you should, you know, this is a reason not to do it with a therapist, but you know, that's not, those are, those are things you have to take into account no matter when you're doing them or who you're doing them with, whether you're doing them with your friend or whether you're doing them with, with like a licensed therapist, you know, they're, it's powerful stuff you're signing up for. Um, so it's, yeah. And yet, I don't and, yet know. and yet, you know, so many of us took them when we were 17 or 21 while we were riding around the country on a, on a Volkswagen <laughs> bus. And, uh, you know, most yeah. of us turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, but, yeah. But, you know, look, I mean, so I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. For sure. and, and I grew up basically in the 90s, you know. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, those were my teenage years. And those were, you know, really not the thick of the drug war, but, but pretty close to it coming out of, coming out of the, the, the Bush, the Reagan-Bush years. Um, and there was enough folklore around psychedelics as it, for me as a teenager to feel like I had an understanding of what was safe and the dosages and, you know, a, a way to, to find or create a container that was like a good place to do it. You know, the set and setting stuff like that, all that stuff made it to me, you know, like as a teenager that it was like there, you know, there were enough books, even, even just like the electrical acid test or, or, you know, acid dreams. There was enough out there that you could, you could put two and two together and understand like, okay, well, this is what, a, this is the equivalent of a seatbelt or, you know, that kind of, you know, right. so it, by the, by the nineties, it wasn't mostly just like, Oh, I'm going to take this drug and see what happens. I most, almost everybody in my high school, you know, I grew up on Long Island as well. And I was, you know, I was, I had, I had sufficient, I didn't, I didn't really get into psychedelics in high school. For me, it was like, a, it was when I got to college, and mm -hmm. that was kind of when it, it they, they started making it into my world. Um, and I think a large part of that is because there was enough urban folklore and enough kind of like underground knowledge that just sort of made it to me that like I had, I had an under you know, and I, I was also seeking it out to be fair. Right. Um, but, um, what I'm saying is there is, it's, it's hard, it's not quite a safety net in terms of underground usage, but I, I, I feel like the, 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 the knowledge has spread far enough that it's, you know, I think, I think kids taking LSD generally know a little bit what they're, you know, more than a little bit what they're getting into. Yeah. Um, I, I like the fact that you referenced over the course of heads, like the, the study that was done on high school students, right? For, for different years, like uh -huh. what percentage of them had taken a psychedelic drug before they graduated from high school or, or whatever they were measuring. And it was interesting to see that rise and fall over time, depending on what was going on in the culture and, and, and so on. Um, do you know where it is now? Um, I don't. I, I guess the last time I really checked into it was like, I mean, and it's always like a year or two behind. Like that's another thing is that it's, and I, I certainly, I actually, ha I certainly haven't checked in post-pandemic numbers, but around the time that Heads came out, mm -hmm. uh, LSD was at an all-time low on that list. Okay. Um, Interesting. Since then, I know for a fact that LSD, starting in 2015, that there has been a somewhat of a resurgence, and I only know that through seeing the price drop again. Mm -hmm. Like you know, people, you know, they're 
I get I know people who've bought bought amounts in enough, you know, lar- large enough amounts to see the wholesale price go down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and that you know that does tell me that there there is in, in somewhat of an expansion of it since since that you know one you know one story is that there was a you know the dead did the uh, the fairly well shows in 2015 um, and there were stories around them that stuff came out of storage or the new thing <laughs> synthesized that, that that there was a spike um, around that and I don't I don't I haven't really totally traced it since then. Um, Given what's happening, I, I do wonder how, if the age has also possibly gone up a little bit from the high school, mm-hmm. from, you know, the, 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 the average age of, of the psychedelic user has maybe gone up from 18, 19 to, you know, being maybe in the mid-20s, something like that, as, as sort of as, as, as therapy comes, you know, more and more online. And, you know, I, you know, I guess I haven't seen as much about ayahuasca in the last couple of years, we haven't even really talked about that, but that was like, at least in New York, that was like a very trendy thing for a couple of years. And that's age wise, certainly skewing um, higher than high school for sure. That, that's definitely more of a, you know what I mean? So um, I do think the demographics have changed um, in the last 20 years um, of psychedelic users. Uh, I, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't gone under the hood in those numbers in a, in a minute. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Mormons a little while ago, and, and you know, I, this article came out in Rolling Stone yesterday about how there's, you know, not an insignificant number of people who are leaving the Mormon church and uh, joining these psychedelic mushroom groups, um, you know, and, and see it, as, some people see it as an affirmation of their faith, and some people see it as a, um, a complete step away. Uh, but the fact that that's Happened, and most of the people in that in that group are, you know, we're talking like 30s and up, you know, into into the 50s and 60s. I mean, these are these are not young people who are looking to experiment, you know, these right. are people who are looking for a spiritual, um, a spiritual either a spiritual uh, awakening or a, a validation of what they already believe or or huh. something else. Interesting. Uh, it's a it's a great article. I, I think I sent you the link yesterday. So if you, I, I, I will, I will. Uh, I mean, one, well, I mean, one thing I know, you know, a very close psychedelic friend of mine is, uh, is, is what they call a Jack Mormon, you know, it's a former, former Mormon, you know, large, lovely family, love his family. Um, but moved, moved away from that. I think, you know, and I think psychedelics certainly, um, contributed to that. But one thing that I, I'll, I'll more not making an argument, just throwing this out as a, as a point in there, maybe it's made in the article is that, you know, people, associate Mormonism with, with, you know, Salt Lake City, but the second biggest Mormon community in, in, in the country, maybe the world is, uh, is the Bay area. And then mm-hmm. actually sort of, um, specifically the East Bay, like mm-hmm. kind of sort of outside Berkeley and Oakland. Um, and I do wonder how much geographical overlap has to do with kind of that recent, <laughs> with very, what, very what you were just telling me. Um, but yeah, like I said, like I keep saying, psychedelics is a non-specific amplifier. There's a lot of stuff about about LSD and and conservatism and kind of sort of what you're what you're what you're bringing with you and what and what you get out of it. Mm-hmm. So it, I guess ultimately it doesn't really surprise me mm-hmm. <laughs> that people could take psychedelics and find affirmation of of their their faith in it. Um, yeah, there's lots of that throughout the years. Yeah. 
Well, the, the good question. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that, that's a, you know, that's a huge part of the 60s as well, is, you know, people taking LSD and becoming Jesus freaks. That's, you know, right. that's, a, that's, that's, that's a path that, that happened for sure. Um, well, one of the, the quotes from the article I liked was uh, that the, the founders of this sort of proto-mushroom church are, uh, say that they, they emphasize that the idea behind it the real medicine is the community and what they're really seeking is a connection. And I, I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That also dovetails with, with addiction treatment and, and the, basically the basis of addiction being a lack of connection to other people. So, right. and you know, that was an interesting, interesting. Yeah. Lesson. And I, and I think, I guess to tie it back to, to my, to my book heads, that's, that was my interest is, 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 is the communities that psychedelics created and, and this larger world that they, that they were able to, to, to generate. Um, and it's in this day and age, it's hard to say there's a single psychedelic community, uh, which is, I think, a phrase, you know, psychedelic community is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, I think, in conference land and, and, and things. But to me, what's become really obvious in the last five or six years is that, you know, there is not one psychedelic community. There, there are many, and they're, and they're what they are is reflections of non-psychedelic communities it's you know yeah it's right. you know it's geographical it's use wise you know it's just a psychedelics are a thing and they might get, they, they might appear <laughs> and you know it's, it's it's not a monolithic culture for, no yeah. absolutely not which is what makes it really kind of exciting and fascinating and interesting and why it's still interesting that it's not just like a you know we know what alcohol does to people that's a you know it's a very simple comparison you know you know you know what we you know what drinking culture looks like we know how that has evolved and we know how that basically looks the same and has kind of looked the same for centuries and centuries and psychedelics not not as predictable as that it's you know you're it's yeah yeah it's it's uh and it's the lack of uh, predictability which makes it so fascinating uh, right and difficult difficult yeah <laughs> Uh, especially when you're trying to apply it therapeutically to people who are recovering from addiction, you know, it, which may, it makes it's a it's a difficult discussion for someone who is struggling with addiction to make a decision to go down that road, you know, right. and, and, you know, there's information out there. But I think I think, again, people have to be kind of make their own decisions, but you know, go into it with eyes wide open. Right. Yeah. So uh, I appreciate you giving me a lot of your time today. I just want a couple more questions. Yeah, sure. By my own curiosity about uh, the deadcast, and also yeah, okay. some, some of my listeners have, uh, you know, asked me to ask a couple of questions. Also, um, do you, when you approach a, a season, does does the dead organization give you the topic, or do you kind of work, you know, workshop that, or how do you come up with what the next season's going to be? Oh, uh, it's usually a little of both. Um, a lot of it is sort of. I don't want to say obvious, but you know, a lot of it is based on anniversaries. Um, a lot of it is based on what what the record company is putting out. Right. You know, we are we are an we are, we are an official you know product of of of, of the record company in that sense. Um, but there is a lot of give and take in terms of like who is around and what stories you know we want to tell. You know, some some amount of it is like okay, they're putting out a Working Man's Dead set, so we've got maybe ten episodes of Working Man's Dead. But then we kind of have more optional things that we're like, oh, well, we can talk to this person, and that'll be a really cool story. Or 
we found, you know, these five people who were, you know, we, so we did an episode about, um, the, the grateful that we did, we've done a couple of acid test episodes. We did, right. but we did, we did one that I, that I really like about, um, the dead's period in LA in 1966 when they were living downstairs from Owsley or he, they were living in a house with Owsley. He was their patron and he was upstairs ta- tabbing out LSD and they were downstairs practicing. And that was a case where we were able to find, you know, a couple of their housemates from that era who were still around. We were able to, um, very kindly, David Gans lent us archival audio of Owsley talking about that period. So it was kind of like all these things sort of conspired. It's like, oh, we've got all these pieces that can then tell this story. Mm-hmm. So in that case, that was like, I kind of made <laughs> a decision to like, we, we, we want we want to do this. But so it's it's a balance, but it's it's a it's a collaboration between between us and and you know we have a we have a producer at Rhino, so we have a, we have a weekly call where we kind of talk through what's coming up on their end and what's coming up on our end, and yeah, it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing like the access that you have to to folks who are in the scene, and um, also the way you sort of reach out and you're able to to get people who are you know just people who attended the concerts in Europe, for example, to, to call in and share their stories with people. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. And that's why we, do you find, did you find that people are like eager to talk about what, about that stuff or. Oh yeah. So well, some of them, yeah. some of them are, it depends. I mean, it's, we've had many, many dozens of guests at this point. So it's a pretty wide range of, of reactions. Most people are pretty um, happy to talk about it. It's, you know, we do, we have, we, being the official podcast, it's it's a lovely thing to be able to email somebody and say, "Hey, we are the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. We'd love to talk to you." And that does that is a door opener for sure for for people who are affiliated with the band, as you know, whether they're part of the crew or the management or, or, or whatever they are. Um, but my favorite thing is is you know, and I, I love interviewing anybody about this kind of stuff. But I love interviewing people who've never been interviewed before. That's always kind of like my that's kind of my dream interview is somebody who's never talked about something to anybody in a public way um and we get a lot of that too and there's a lot of there's a lot of consciously sort of finding people who who, who've never kind of told stories before and and part of that is because you know part of the fun of that is finding stories that nobody's ever heard before but also finding people who haven't been telling the same story over and over again for decades and decades and decades you know believe me i'll sit and listen to Steve Parrish, you know, Jerry Garcia's roadie, tell stories for days, weeks, months, years. You know, that guy is a font of, 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 of cool stuff. Um, or, you know, members of the band for that matter. But at the same time, they've, I've read many dozens, hundreds of interviews with, you know, Bob Weir, with Mickey Hart, with these guys. And don't get me wrong, I want to talk to them. <laughs> I'm happy to interview any of them, whatever that opportunity presents itself. But they've also been telling a lot of these stories for many years, and it's right. like, well, hmm. you know, it's <laughs> let's get some more stories. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, uh, Paris so is a great interview. Because oh, yeah, yeah. He, you know, you, you just wind him up and he goes. Uh, yeah. Probably one of my favorite moments in the, I don't know if it was this season or last season, when uh, he was going off on... I think it was the story when he they were smoking at the Louvre out on the balcony or something, and he just starts drifting off into a discussion of uh, of, of marijuana, and then he like comes comes back to you and he's like, "What do you want to know that for?" You know, all suspicious, and you're like, "We'll ask the questions, Parish." I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great, it was a great moment. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, Steve is one of the 
most fun people to, to interview. Absolutely. He's got, <laughs> own, he's got his own show on uh, Sirius also. So, you know, you folks and, more from him, please tune in. It's a wild ride. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that show continues wherever Steve is at the present moment, whether he's on the air or not. <laughs> no, no doubt about that. Yeah. All right, Jesse. Uh, thanks very much. If people want to get a hold of you or, or find your stuff, where can they do that? Uh, well, on my website, jessegarno.com, J-E-S-S-E-G-A-R-N-O-W.com. And my email address is, is, is there. Um, social media wise, I'm on Twitter, uh, Bujwick, B-O-U-R-G-W-I-C-K. That's kind of the only social media I really get involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm out there. Um, Heads is out as an audiobook now. Thank you for listening to it. And people can get that wherever they, uh, wherever they get their audiobooks. It is read by the author, which, which is, makes a big difference. I it is, much it prefer is, listening to audiobooks that are read by the people that wrote them. Because you it was the right. Yes, really fun to read. You know, I hadn't looked at it in a while. And it was fun to, fun to go back and do it. Excellent. Uh, and you can always listen to Jesse on WFMU. Oh, yeah. And WF, yeah, WFMU, the Frow Show is every Tuesday, 9 to midnight Eastern time. And you can listen to old episodes at WFMU.org. The Deadcast is at dead.net slash deadcast. All our old episodes are there. We started posting transcripts recently. So if you're not, cool. well, if, you, if you're still listening to the sound of my voice, you're obviously a podcast listener. But if you, uh, if, uh, if you just prefer to read, read instead of listen that's now an option as well um, is, there a, is there a date for the new season or uh, uh it's going later later this summer later this summer okay yeah well thank you very much for your time and i think it was a very interesting conversation i think our listeners will get a lot out of it uh and Appreciate it. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I appreciate it. All right. And we're back. What'd you think of that? Wow. Best interview <laughs> I've ever heard by anybody. He's, a, he's definitely an interesting guy. Uh, very uh, knowledgeable in his subject area for sure. You know? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, I, I like, I don't know much of anything about him or his, even the podcast, but I, one of the first things coming out about how he actually went to a local private school yeah, in our town, basically. in our town. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just like, a, I'm like, Oh, I know that school, you know, and I'm listening to it. Um, very cool. Um, tell us what you guys thought about it. Uh, go to the Facebook page. Uh, it's uh, recovery in the middle ages. You search it. We've got a, a page that has a private group you can join and um, that's, you know, free for all basically. And I mean, you have to like apply sort of, but you know, we let most people in and we've got great conversations. Most, most going people on have most, we ever let, not let anyone in. I think one time I denied somebody because <laughs> sometimes you can see like yeah, that it's fake or whatever, right. but yeah. So tell us what you thought or Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com. Yeah. Based on the feedback we get, we'll either have another discussion about it next week or, uh, or, next episode rather or not <laughs> or know, not depending um and so i mean we we're trying to get back to a regular schedule here so if you um hang with us um we're hoping to put out uh, some more content um maybe we'll record some uh, after this and um as I ben franklin said 
We must hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. That's right. Hang together. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for listening, because that about does it for today. I had a good time. Did you? Oh, it was great. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us at twat, you twit. Support your favorite show. Drop a five-star review. Join our private Facebook group, buy a t-shirt, or simply write and say hello. We love meeting new monsters and chopping it up on the Facebook group. Join the Inner Sanctum at patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages for closer <laughs> for a closer walk with us and <laughs> Right? Was that like? But it's really cool. We talked about it before. You get free merchandise. There was this, when there was one set of footsteps in the sand. That yes. is when Nat was carrying you. <laughs> so sacrilegious. Um, check us out. We'll check you out back. It'll be awkward. And <laughs> whole, this really, whole thing is awkward. It's very awkward. Uh, and finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of our little show, please share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress, not perfection, people. See you next time. Later, cheese balls. <laughs> Stay fresh. Stay fresh. Cheese bags. See be good. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit.